Hello again, trippers. I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan, and your host for another episode of A Trip to the Movies. I'm currently in our podcast studio a mile beneath the streets of London, and in a moment, my guest this week, the brilliant filmmaker Jake West, will be talking about his fantastic new documentary and taking us on his perfect night out at the cinema. Thank you, as always, for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by My Limitless, the subscription membership from Odeon Cinemas. For only four $14.99 a month, you can see all the movies at Odeon whenever you like. With a three-month minimum term, the possibilities are limitless, which explains the name. But that's not all. Think of those cracking recliners at Odeon Lux Cinemas. Think of access to movies before they're officially released. Think of 10% of all the food and drink you'd like, including at their Oscars bars. Sign up today online by going to odeon.co.uk go on give them a whirl and see how much fun life as a cinema goer can be when you are truly limitless also if you'd like a pair of tickets to head to your nearest odeon stick around after the interview and i'll tell you how you can get your hands on some and if you'd like to watch today's interview in glorious technicolor do head over to our youtube channel and please while you're there hit that subscribe button and help us grow the pod is hugely appreciated for all the latest updates and to get in touch you'll find us at trip to movies pod that's at trip to movies pod on all social media right then time to introduce today's guest who I interviewed only yesterday on Zoom. So let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect night out at the cinema. This week we're joined by a wonderful filmmaker who's delivered a whole host of horror to our screens from his first vampire feature Razorblade Smile to alien invasion movie Evil Aliens to his excellent segment on the ABCs of death. As well as that, he's both entertained and educated us with some fantastic documentary deep dives into everything from the video nasties phenomenon to the Phantasm horror franchise. And now he's about to unleash possibly his greatest deep dive yet as he brings a little-known filmmaking legend to our screens with his wonderful documentary, Mancunian Man, The Legendary Life of Cliff Twemlow. Here to tell us about that and take us on his perfect night out of the movies, it is the hugely talented Jake West. Mr. Jake West, hello and welcome to the show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Alex. It's lovely to see you again. It's lovely to see you again as well, mate. I mean, the last time we saw each other, uh, we were hiding in the Alamo Draft House, uh, trying to escape the sweltering heat of Austin at Fantastic Fest. Yeah, man, that, what, what a great festival that is. Um, <laughs> it certainly was hot out there, though. It was, it was like a, over 100 degrees. <laughs> it was officially ridiculous weather, although obviously now being British and looking out my window at this blustery day, I'm like, I kind of miss it. <laughs> yeah, we're sort of, it's, it, things are never perfect where you are, I guess. But um, no, Austin was amazing. I mean, we're just not, as Brits, we're just not used to that heat. It's when you step outside, it's kind of like a, it's like a blast furnace, wasn't it? You know, like, it's like, you know, when you get into a car and it's been heating up all day, that's like sort of what it's like outside of Austin, where it was yeah. when we were there. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was mad. But I will say, while I was ensconced in, the Alamo Theatre, I did get to watch uh, your incredible documentary, Mancunian Man, The Legendary Life of Cliff Twemlow. So before we get into it, because I want to talk about seeing it on the big screen, um, 
as your trailer for this documentary announces, uh, have you heard of Cliff Twemlow? And the answer, like so many people, I think is absolutely not. I've never <laughs> heard of him until this documentary. So set the scene for us. Who was Cliff Twemlow? Well, Cliff Twemlow was a Manchester-born working-class guy. He was born in like 1937 um, in Eccles in Manchester. And he, in his early life, as a, he started working on the doors as a bouncer. He was also like a singer, a nightclub singer, and he started trying playing around with music and bands. Um, but what happened is he, he wrote a, an autobiography about his time on the doors called um, Tuxedo Warrior, and that was in the 70s. And that got optioned by a film company in the States, and they wanted to make a, a like a, an American movie of that about, about, about his life, it seemed. But the movie got made, and it was actually set in, in Africa, and it was about diamonds smuggling, <laughs> and it was set in the kind of jungle. And it had no reference to Manchester and the clubland out there, apart from John Wyman, who starred in it as Cliff, was a bouncer on a, on a nightclub. You know, it wasn't really a nightclub. It was a bar called the Amiga Bar. So basically, they really just kept the title and the idea that Cliff was a bouncer in it. But they did ask Cliff to go along as a stunt performer because Cliff was a, a bodybuilder and a, a fighter. Um, so he got invited along to the film and he's in it. And that's when he got the film bug and he decided that he wanted to make his own movies. So he he kind of figured a way out of, okay, I really like doing movies and I will now start making my own. And he started trying to do a movie called The Pike, which is the British freshwater Jaws, <laughs> if you could believe it, which was going to have Joan Collins in it. And they built a robotic fish and and all sorts of things. But things went wrong. The fish didn't work. You know, it kind of sank when they they, they tried to launch. They had this launch you, thing. You're um, talking about one, still... of, one of my favourite moments in uh, your documentary is the whole Pike thing. It's... Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's also hilarious that, you know, you've got, he, he's sort of claiming that they're, you know, he Cliff, Cliff sort of, you know, like a fish always gets bigger in the catching. Um, Cliff claims the pike, like real pikes are up to 19 foot. That's not true <laughs> at all. <laughs> like he's, he's definitely massaging the truth. I think seven foot might be the, the absolute max, but in, in his film, he was having a 12 foot pike, but I don't think anyone's ever seen a 12 foot pike, but it's a great idea and it's really funny. And he actually, but he, 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 he wanted to do that film because he'd actually written a, a horror novel called The Bike because Cliff, apart from being a musician and a bouncer and a bodybuilder, he was also a novelist <laughs> and he wrote two horror novels. So he was somebody who was had this kind of irrepressible desire to create. So when the pike fell apart, he thought, well, how am I going to get a film made? Um, and being in the UK, being in Manchester, it was the 80s, video technology was coming out and he cottoned onto that. And he thought, okay, if we shot something on video, we could then release it and just go for the home video market. So he was one of the early pioneers of shot on video movie making in the UK, sort of micro budget sort of style, at a time before no, nobody had done that. So he decided to sort of do an interpretation of Tuxedo Warrior, his book, you know, which was much more true to the spirit of his, his own character. And that was called GBH, where he plays a bouncer called, you know, the Mancunian. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he did the theme song as well as a musician called, the, you know, the Man, Man, Mancunian Man, which is hilarious in its own right. So he did all the music in his film. So he wrote the theme tune, <laughs> sung the theme to acted in it. <laughs> but... But because he was working on low budgets, he was getting all of his mates in the film. So they're all local bouncers and martial artists and models and things like that. They weren't professional kind of filmmakers mm -hmm. and they didn't really know what they were doing. So that the early years of Cliff and his filmmaking are all these hilarious stories of all the things that they did wrong because they really didn't, that they weren't like professionals working in the industry. But it's also they were working in Manchester 
which he wanted to make the Hollywood of the North, which is, you know, admirable at a time in the 80s when there's hardly any film production and anything going on. So there's this fascinating pocket universe of all these crazy films. And he made about nearly 10 films in the end, some quite a number of which weren't fully completed, but it's a really, really fascinating sort of journey. And then there's quite a level of emotion to it as well. And it's very funny. So I think, I mean, you've seen it, so you can tell me what your views are really, Alex. It's funny. It's emotional. But the one thing I took away from it was just how inspiring it was to filmmakers, young filmmakers, any filmmaker who's like, you know, I'm, I want to get into the film industry. Here's a guy who just went, I'm going to do it and did it and and created this uh, this legend, which you've so beautifully put on screen. And yeah, it's um, it's a wonderful journey. And it's it's so rich with information. I mean, you touched on a couple of things already. Two things that I think really stick out about uh, Cliff Dremlow is, um, first of all, how much fun he has with the truth. Um, uh, there's, uh, I think one of his friends goes, yeah, he had an interesting relationship with the truth because there's the famous story, uh, which you include in the documentary about his song, live and let die. And it's, <laughs> it's only when you hear it that you're like, Hmm, did you really write that before like live and let die was a thing? Yeah, I think, I think Cliff, he, he was a bit of a chancer, I think definitely. And he obviously heard, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is what happened, but even though he doesn't quite tell it that way, I'm pretty sure he heard that the new Bond film was called Live and Let Die. And because he was a musician, he wrote a song called Live and Let Die, which he recorded with a, with a female artist. And um, it's it's actually a really, it's a really great fun track. And I think his his f- thinking was, is, oh, if I do that, they'll use it for maybe for the film. But in the end, as we all know, they went with um, Paul McCartney mm-hmm. and they sued the arsat of Cliff and Cliff lost all of his money. But, it's a shame because the Living Let Die track is actually a really, it's a really good, strong track. And um, interesting enough, that was Terry Wogan's pick of the week at the point before the, the McCartney one came out. So it was, it had a lot of airplay and it was actually, but then Cubby Broccoli came along and said, no, you can't do this. Took them to court. They lost all their money. The film got, sorry, the song got actually withdrawn. And it's actually, you, you can find maybe a copy of it on eBay if you look, but or I think it's on YouTube, but beyond that, it's not something that's ever been released. So you get to hear the, the song in, you know, part of, part of its glory in the documentary as well. <laughs> and it is, and it is a cracking tune. I mean, it, it does sound a lot like the Bond theme, but it is a cracking tune. Well, also, if you listen cl- closely to Cliff's GBH theme, it sounds a lot like John, John Barry's, um, uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service <laughs> to me as well. He, I mean, Cliff was very, in, he was definitely very influenced by Bond. And in a number of his films, he uses Bond elements. Like in, in GBH, there's one of his mates, a guy called Martin DeRoy, who's a stunt driver. The cars, some of the cars in the film, the, there's the Lotus Esprit, which is it, which is the one which was used in um, for, for, for her eyes only, for your eyes only. And um, that, that was, so there's a sort of bond link there. When he did the film Eve Island, he wanted to do like a James Bond character. So that that's very much a kind of Bond-inspired thing. Um, there's an alter, alternative version of GBH with the called the Omega, the Omega Connection, which is an alternate release where Cliff shots some extra scenes. And it's got a, new, a different opening scene, which is very much filmed in a James Bond style, where amusingly, this 
this will be on the extras of the things. It did. It was that it, it didn't make the documentary, and it was in an earlier cut. But you've got Cliff in a kind of body stocking to coat himself in a silhouette, and you've got Jeanette Grey, the, the the actress he was working with, and they're, they're doing the kind of James Bondy type movements. And there's a t- the fact there's one tiny little clip of it in the film, but that's fascinating. But he was yeah, Bond was something that he was definitely very influenced by. Um, so. You know, <laughs> that's, that's that's so interesting that the stuff that you couldn't even fit in this documentary, because obviously my due diligence, I was like, you know, what, I'm going to try and um, watch some um, Cliff Twemlow films and they're, they're, they're impossible to find. You know, you think you can find anything online. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because the one thing about Cliff Twemlow is a lot of his work was never like properly released or if it was released, it was released in very piecemeal ways. Apart, GBH is the only film that really got a proper release because that was also one of these the section section three video nasties in the UK, which I covered in my video nasties documentary. Mm. So he he he's known for GBH. That's the one film. If you know Cliff Tremlow, generally that's the one film you might know of GBH because that was the one that got a proper release and it got into the UK video charts and then it became a video nasty and it got banned. So it it became click, like collectible. So that's that's the, but the rest of his work, like when you see the documentaries, a lot of the time he made these movies and then they didn't get released or they didn't get finished properly and all the rest of it. So it's kind of like this fascinating world of if you, if you're into, if you start getting into Cliff Twemlow, it's a bit like it's we're in a world now where if you want to see a movie, you'd go online and you press a button and you can watch it in like five minutes. Yeah. With Cliff Twemlow, Cliff Twemlow, he takes you back to the eighties, because if you want to see his films, you actually have to search for them. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah. I mean, it's this. This is it. I was, you know, I mean, in my arrogance, I was just like, I'll find it somewhere. It'll be somewhere. It's they're not. They're not. And I mean, I think you've you've described uh, your your business partner, uh, Mark Morris, uh, as uh, the Sherlock Holmes of the cult video world, which is a wonderful yes. title. Um, how <laughs> how did he go about finding some of uh, the footage, this rare footage that you've managed to uncover for this documentary? Oh well, Mark is. Yeah, it basically, if you say to Mark, can you find this or can you find that? He's, I mean, if you go around to Mark's house, it's like going back into a video shop in the 1980s, but a video shop only stocks with independent labels, <laughs> you know, like sort of Intervision and Go Video. And it's like, so Mark is a kind of a collector, a connoisseur, and he's he's one of the, the sort of most renowned people in the UK for his collection and his archive. And with Mark, he's just incredibly good at tracking down. But with the Tremlo stuff, it took... You know, this documentary took three years in the end to do it. But a lot of that was because we needed to find the material. And the way we were getting a lot of that material or or decent-ish versions was by speaking with all the people that worked with Cliff in the 80s and 90s. So it was actually Mark going back to people and trying to find out who had what material. And, you know, he's been been working on it. And a lot of it was shot on video that, you know, obviously the masters were sometimes of questionable quality. So he spent a long time just gathering stuff. Um, so with Mark, I mean, I think that's a separate answer. You'd have to ask him, but yeah. literally, Alex, if you say to Mark, have you, could you find this? You know, he's the guy that can find it. Like I say, he's got almost supernatural detective video skills. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Leave it with me. Yeah, I, I, I get it. So um, obviously I'm imagining on your journey of making this, you've seen some of these movies. That Cliff oh finished. yeah, I've, I've pretty much seen everything because all of, even though some of the things that which weren't released are probably finished, there were versions of them like cuts, edits. Mm-hmm. So we've managed to find everything. And the producers of this film, which is Severin Films in the US, um, they they are 
gathering, getting, they're gathering all of this stuff. And the, the, the idea is to do a box set release with a lot of the movies on there and the documentary. So that's the ultimate plan. And that should be sometime next year. But they're just, we're just sort of pursuing to find out what the best materials are. And Mark has been kind of working on them to collect it all. So, and then they, we will have an announcement, hopefully the end of this year, probably early next year, but it's going to basically then tell you what is exactly going to be on their set along with the documentary. So that's the plan. Wow. That, honest, uh, for, for anyone who's seen the documentary already and anyone who, who watches Mancunian Man, The Legendary Life of Cliff Twemlow, that's exciting news because you it is like these little soup songs of like, oh man, I'd love to see that movie, which is why I went online and couldn't find them. So that yeah. is very exciting. Well, the the thing also the thing with the cliff the cliff films and one of the, the one of the reasons that we feel watching the documentary will help people because people aren't familiar with him they're not familiar with his story but it's a part of British film history which is kind of it's a, it's something new to discover it's like oh my god he did all of this stuff and it's when you watch his stuff because it was all shot in the eighties mostly or the early nineties it takes you back to a world which no longer exists so, but it's not like a it's not like a you know, obviously at the moment, 80s kind of like um, set films is really popular. But when you see them, it's an art directive version of the 80s, like Stranger Things or whatever. It's a kind of sort of Spielberg romantic version of the 80s. But when you watch Cliff Twemlow stuff, you're watching the actual 80s in, in Manchester. And it, there's something and like it's almost like a stepping back into in time just to see the world as it was. Um, mm. That's also a fascinating kind of social document about some of these films. Um so that's yeah, that's another that's another thing which sort of I think is very appealing. But if you watch the documentary, it gives you the context in the way these films were made, and also the way the Cliff did this. So I think the films are more enjoyable if you understand the kind of um, the, the kind of his kind of life and how he got there, because they're they're not like polished sort of. He's not like a he's not an undiscovered Spielberg. He's a working class <laughs> bouncer who made these movies, and that's kind of what makes them so endearing. Yeah, but they look great. They look like proper gritty exploitation flicks. Oh yeah, I mean they are, and each and they're all different. You know, like he's got a couple of kind of like kind of like blood GBH kind of crime thrillery type things. Then you've got a couple of horror movies, Eye of Satan, mm. and um, uh, a werewolf one called Moonstalker, and you've got a James Bo a couple of James Bondy type ones. You know, Eve um, Target Eve Island, and then there's a kind of meta one about film film a film within a film. Uh, which is called the Ibiza Collection, which was shot in Spain. So, the, and there's GBH two, and the, the, so, but there's fascinating. Then, then there's a bunch of promo stuff that he did, which is included. And some of these things were just shot as promos. But for instance, there's one called Tokyo Sunrise. Oh my God, I love this. Yeah. Tell, tell us about, tell us the plot of this. So it's basically there's like a, you know, like a Japanese company that are putting drugs into an energy drink, <laughs> and uh, it's a great. It's actually a really fun concept. But he's got to, he's got to babysit this this model um, who's also played by Jeanette Grey, one of his his regular actors. So they shot all these snippets of fights and whatever, but. Really interestingly, on that front, for, for instance, this is the this is one of the discoveries as we've been doing this. Um, we've literally just found all of the original Rush's tapes for the Tokyo Sunrise promo. Now, Cliff only ever cut a promo of Tokyo Sunrise, and that, you know, like it's about a two and a half, three minute promo the the whole thing. Mm. But we've found all of the all of the Rush's tapes that he shot on that, which is about sort of five five tapes worth of. I don't know how long they all are, but so and there was a script. Uh, it was never a, a full feature, but if we're going to look at those rushes and we may reconstruct his original script to, to actually create a longer version of that. So oh my God. We're, we're, we're assessing that material like in the next week or so. So there's all this stuff happening in the background. So that's why we can't quite announce exactly. But I'm hoping that we're going to reconstruct because there's some, 
we looked at one of the Rush's tapes and there's like a complete, there's a scene in there which was never on the promo. So there could be a whole treasure trove of unseen cliff things. <laughs> um, I, the reason I look so excited for people watching this is because having seen the documentary, all of this is it's really exciting. And like like you said, Jake, I think when people see it, you'll because you get all this behind the scenes story, all this background, all this build up, and then you want to see the movie as best you yeah. can. It's really well, interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, it's really funny, and and one of the biggest sort of um not barriers, but the one of the biggest things that people have to when they before they see the film it's like they or there's almost sometimes a reticence for people to watch a film about somebody they don't know right. which is because obviously they feel always oh, might be boring because it you know it's a it's a two-hour documentary as well so it's not super short but the reason it's that length is it, it covers the guy's entire life and all of the films he did mm. so it needs to give some some meat on the bone um but and most people who have watched the documentary, they come up to me afterwards and go, I never knew any of that. Um, it's really <laughs> incredible. I'm really excited. So they get into it. So it's almost like they've got to get part of, because it's called Mancunian Man, Legend Life of Cliff Terminal, that oh, it's based in Manchester. Oh, maybe I'm not that interested in that. Oh, oh it's, it's Cliff who? So that that's kind of like, the, you've got to get people past that point. And once they're in, they tend to go, well, we really love it. And they fall in love with, with, with him and, and the, and the piece <laughs> to go back to where I started, uh, seeing it on the big screen uh, was pretty special as well. Because I, I mean, as you said at the start, that he released, uh, he bought, he got into the whole VHS revolution of the eighties and started filming on VHS. And some of these clips, even though they're, they're just moments from his movies, have probably never been seen on the big screen. In fact, certainly until you started touring this film. Oh yeah, no, it's it's. It's it's so almost kind of like it's a typical kind of Cliff Twemlow thing. Because when you see the documentary, he's very much a kind of like a boom and bust kind of character. But it's almost fitting that you know, like forty years after they were made, they're finally being seen on a big screen <laughs> because that's almost a Twemlow thing. Um, yeah. But also because they were shot on video, they were never gonna be seen on the big screen when he made them because the tech, there was no video projection at that time. The technology didn't it didn't even exist to do that. Mm. So what was hilarious, and this is the, the funniest thing, in the, the actual premiere of the film was at Fright Fest at the Empire Leicester Square on the IMAX screen, which is one of the <laughs> biggest screens in the world. So yeah, so it, we we got to see what VHS looks like on an IMAX screen. <laughs> um so it was but that's it was so funny and it was like it was just this incredible, hilarious kind of um I don't know, it's kind of like it's all kind of like um, back to front, you know, like you've got this video technology from there is now finally being on his big screen debut. So I, love, <laughs> was, I kind of love the, I love that. So there's something delicious about it. And it was lovely seeing uh, so many of his former castmates and friends in the audience to uh, watch that premiere at Fight Fest as well. Oh yeah. I mean, it was really, really touching because mm. obviously, um, I, obviously I don't, without wanting to give any spoilers on the actual documentary, but Cliff, uh, he passed away in 1993. So he never, he never got to see the kind of um, how his films were to spread and impact people over the years. So, so actually, for his friends who work with him, they're in the movies, and some of them produce them. And the guy who made the Pike was there. You know, remember they've Cliff is this really big, important part of their lives, and they all treasure it. And they were seeing. So it was a very emotional moment when they saw that film, and a lot of them were kind of in in tears at the end. And mm. also, the biggest compliment from a lot of them, and also when I, we showed it in the states recently, and John Sim Ryan was there, the guy, the guy who plays Big Nick Rafferty. <laughs> um, and 
a lot of them after the film they were so complimentary and they're saying they 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 found things out about cliff that they didn't know and <laughs> because obviously because i was researching it so deeply we were and talking to so many different people we yeah. were really uncovering some things which no stories that even his friends hadn't necessarily heard so that was an incredible compliment it's a wonderful, wonderful documentary. Mancunian Man, The Legendary Life of Cliff Twemlow. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, right then, Jake, as we were talking about the big screen just then, it's time to leave this reality and enter a dimension of pure film where our virtual cinema awaits. You are our guide. We are your audience. Let's go on a trip to the movies. So we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz as there always is in a cinema foyer, the hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip, Jake. Who have you picked, living or dead, to go with you? I'm going to pick Jane Mansfield. <laughs> now, Jane Mansfield, the, the, the 50s sort of bombshell icon. Um, and the reason I've picked Jane Mansfield is because she's almost like a fictional character because she's like a, she's such a sort of um she's such a sort of larger than life kind of person she almost feels that it would be so if i could go to the movie i mean i love larger than life over the top kind of characters and obviously cliff twemlow is one of them as well but jane mansfield was like you know kind of this 50s alternative like um marilyn monroe type and to me she almost like it would be like going to the movies with somebody from the like who's in a movie so it'd be like a sort of double it would be like a movie experience but doubled it would be like if i turn around and with jane mansfield be i'm in a fucking jane mansfield movie watching a movie how how fucking cool would that be so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that so, would be cool she was i mean she was she was a, you know a, a huge star and also because she was like a, a, a she did the template for a lot of celebrities in inverted commas now who uh who basically engaged with the press that was her big thing she really engaged with with the press and created this self-authored scandal which built her star yeah but 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 also she was like i said the thing about jane as well she's actually really one of these very interesting characters because she was playing the kind of you know bleach bomb marilyn monroe kind of you kind of sort of breathy she was actually an incredibly intelligent woman she spoke about five languages she played about three or four different musical instruments she was into the occult she was into all sorts of interesting things and obviously she was tragically you know killed and you know um so she's one of those characters that i've always found really fascinating and kind of inspiring but like i say i, I love that fact that she's got this kind of like total kind of like kind of like kind of she's like a kind of atomic explosion of energy <laughs> and kind of appeal about her and i love those kind of characters so yeah <laughs> you're absolutely right i've only, i'll be completely honest i've only seen uh, the girl can't help it the girl can't help it is brilliant yeah i loved it because she seemed in on the joke as well like for because she was playing like a, a kind of marilyn monroe character but she wasn't that she was being made fun of oh definitely yeah i mean the studio the studios were were kind of trying to build her up as an alternative marilyn which was mm. i think you know of, of, of the time you can understand why and i think marilyn was costing them more money at that point but the, the bottom line is it doesn't really matter i love the world where you've got this kind of you know i kind of like the alternative marilyn monroe because there's something kind of groovy about that as well but <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you know if i could take somebody else with me i'll take marilyn as well so we could you know <laughs> uh you're only allowed one and it is jane mansfield all right jake you're going to the cinema with jane mansfield there is a clock on the wall reading a specific time what time have we gone to the cinema? 
well, we have got to the cinema, of course, just it's, it's just coming up for midnight. So we're going to step into that screen at exactly one second past midnight for our midnight movie. Because, you know, we've got Jane Mansfield back from the dead. We've, she's, she's crossed the veil. She's back with us. You know, she's 50s icon in, the, in, the, in 2023. So, you know, we've got all of the supernatural force going for us. And uh, we are now entering into that for a, a midnight screening of pure joy. I love it. I love it. She's passed through one of those places in the world where the cloth between this reality and another has got so threadbare someone can pass through it. Absolutely. And it's good. if anyone could do that, it would be Jane Mansfield, right? <laughs> um, also, obviously, uh, you are a, a, a huge horror fan. You're a horror filmmaker. You've got a wonderful CV of horror movies. So uh, is, is Midnight like the best screening time for you, partly because a lot of the Midnight screenings you watch are horror movies? Yeah, I mean, as a horror filmmaker, there's a large amount of my work has, def has always um, screened as midnight movies quite often when I've web screened them around the world. But also, I'm kind of, I'm definitely a night owl in, in this reality. I think maybe you are a little bit as well, Alex, when we were out in, in, in Austin. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of really, I, I really like the nighttime. I always find it real exciting. One of the biggest problems of living in the UK, though, is, is that pubs close at, you know, like 11.30 or whatever. So <laughs> it, we seem to be stuck in kind of World War II era opening hours still in this country. So when you go to places like LA or Spain or whatever, they're much more geared for going out later. And that's something that's always appealed to me. And I love, obviously, I love horror films. I love that whole, but I always think, I always find things that feel a little bit more exciting around midnight. <laughs> It really does. It really does. And also, I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen you in the daylight. You know, contrary to popular belief in Austin, you know, people thought I was going to step outside and just burst into flames. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, because you've got your curtains drawn, which on the one hand could be because it makes the lighting better for this video, or the other yeah. hand is you cannot stand the sunlight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's only so much facts of 1,000 you can put on, isn't there? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I, 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 no, I do. I do like the sun, but I'm I'm kind of a fairly pale skin, so I do burn a bit easy. So in places like Austin, I had to be a bit careful because when we went out, you know, part of the festival, they took us out um, clay pigeon shooting and barbecuing, which is amazing. Mm. But in that heat, I was literally kind of like melting, so I slathered myself in in kind of sun sun lotion and had a hat on. So you know, I didn't burn to a crisp. But when it comes to movies, I always feel it always feels wrong to go and see a movie in the daylight i don't know why mm. when i go into cinema it's when you go into a cinema it feels like nighttime mm. because there's no external lighting yep. so a cinema is an enclosed world but and you need darkness to project something you know certainly in the old days you did and in, in fact alex one of the other things i miss about cinemas i don't know if i can say this here or i yeah. should save it but I, I don't know you know i'm this shows that i'm a bit how old i am now and I've, i don't i think you maybe remember this as well but I, like, I used to go into our cinema, you used to have a big red curtain, and I love the way when the curtain opened out. <laughs> yeah. you know, and that doesn't happen anymore in, in any cinemas, you know. Yeah. But there was something about, even though that maybe go back to the old days of theatre or the musical, but there's the idea of the curtain opening and it, the, the screen being revealed. There was something really, really magical about that. And I know that sounds like really silly to say I miss it, but it was something that was almost, it felt a bit more like it was a ritual, there's something going on. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, 
part of the uh, the experience of going to the cinema is the pomp and ceremony that surrounds watching a movie. You want that. You want this to be a special occasion. You want to feel that this is a, a moment because for a film fan, it is. You're seeing a film probably for the first time and anything that adds to that idea of being in our church, as were, it works for me. Yeah, I think so. I think cinemas should bring that back, or at least high-end ones. They should bring back the big curtain. Just look, if, mean, I've, if I'm taking Jane Mansfield to the movies, she's not going to be like, well, why can I see the screen and there's nothing on it? <laughs> do, you mean, do you mean the ones where it's almost the big velvet red ones? Yeah, they, exactly, they, the big they velvet up, red curtain, they, the thing that would... Yeah, but yeah, all yeah. cinemas used to have that. They all used to have curtains, yeah. but none of them do anymore. <laughs> Get him back. <laughs> Come on, Jane Mansfield. We've got Jane Mansfield coming. Quick, get a curtain up. For fuck's sake. <laughs> uh, all right, then. So we're going at midnight with Jane Mansfield. Where in the auditorium are we going to be sitting? Okay, well, see, I'm, I'm very picky about this as a filmmaker. Um, it's always the optimum sweet spot in the cinema is the middle row of the middle section. So because that gives you the, if you, if you want to hear the sound mix perfectly, that's the place to spot. So dead center in the middle. So you're you're getting you're going to get the best. You know, I, I don't like it when I hate sitting down the front to the side, for instance, especially on a big screen because it means you're going to look it up. I hate looking being angled on to something. You know, so so for me, it's always that um, definite. You know, definite plot spot. You know, so I always try and book the middle of the middle. That's the that's the best place to sit for me. No further questions on that. Spoken like a true filmmaker. That is the most popular spot for any director we've had on the show. So we're sitting in the middle of the middle. The final thing we need before we leave the foyer and start our walk towards the auditorium. Oh, the air in the foyer is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available from the various stands. What are you choosing to eat? Well, the thing is, is that what I was going to choose to eat, they don't sell at cinemas because I'm not really a snack person in the cinema because I actually thought, because I always thought, I never really, I understand why they sell popcorn, but it's actually really irritating because it's crunchy and noisy and it's kind of like, it's actually, and crisps and things like that. So I'm not really a snack at the cinema. So I'm going to take my own snacks with me and I'm with James. So we, we need something to give us a bit of pep at midnight. So we're, we're taking in some vodka jellies with us, but they're going to be lime vodka jelly <laughs> the kind of green one <laughs> lime vodka jelly okay well i guess that's your food and drink sorted it, it... if we were allowed to take drinks in then i'd take to see maybe we'd have some, we'd have some maybe vodka martinis because you know with jane we've got to got to got to you know be take it classy <laughs> okay so vodka martini vodka Mart i'm going to give you some vodka martinis and some lime vodka jelly i mean yeah so we've got drinks and snack drinks <laughs> <laughs> those things god they they can be lethal though because because a, they're solid, and B, the sugar masks the vodka and alcohol. You can you can have a few of those, and suddenly, you just like like that, it just goes off like a switch. And you're like, oh my god, I'm drunk. Yeah, but it's accurate. But also, that's the thing. If you if you haven't been drinking, but you want to get a nice buzz on, that's quite it's quite good. You know, because it sort of absorbs into you, doesn't it? And it lasts with that. <laughs> lovely stuff, lovely stuff. All right, then let's push open the next set of doors and start our walk down the corridor towards the auditorium. Now the corridor's looking a little bare now, so I'm going to put of posters on the wall to celebrate some of your most important movie memories. And the first poster I'm putting up depicts your fondest movie memory. Aha. Well, like I said, I, I've got two picks for this. Am I allowed to say them both? Yeah, um, go on. We're going to have to eventually come down hard on one, but let's hear both of them. Okay, it's really, okay this is almost an impossible question to answer, basically, because I love the movies so much and I've got so many different 
like movies that I would love to pick and for so many different reasons. But the, the two I've done are for, for reasons which are, you know, more kind of, I suppose, personal. Okay, so the, the first one I'm going to pick is The Lost Boys, 1987, The Lost Boys. And I saw this at the, at the in Tunbridge Wells where I lived at the time. It was the the the, uh, the um, Canon Classic, free screens, but it was in screen one, the big one. But being a, being a kid, of, being a teenager in the 80s, which was an amazing time, you know, um, and I've never kind of fully left the 80s, as you can see, I'm kind of sort of part of your stuff there. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so I was, walk- I was walking home from college. Um, I was at a sixth form college, West Kent College at that point. And I was going back and, and some mates of mine were saying to me, oh, so oh, are, you in, are you in this film that's coming out? And it's kind of like, oh, what the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> so I walked past and at a bus stop, there's the Lost Boys poster. <laughs> Which has got the, you know, like a key for something as David. And, you know, so I've always had this kind of bleach blonde spiky sort of look. So it was kind of like, wow. And it's like, there's a vampire film called The Lost Boys. And it's got a kind of, you know, kind of Billy Idolish type vampire in it. So it's kind of like, yeah, well, that's def- that feels like that's a movie that was just made for me. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I like The Lost Boys. I like the. I mean, I remember... I think it was going to be a very different movie at one point because I think it was Richard Donner was going to do it and the original script was Goonies with Vampires. I wasn't aware of that, actually. But yeah, I mean, Joel Schumacher, who, you know, he's done a few variable films, but I love The Lost Boys. But like I say, I saw it when I was 17 years old and it was, like I say, I was seeing it at the perfect moment. And, you know, so it was me and one of my close mates, um, Neil Jenkins, who was the art director and um, on production designer on my first film, Razor Bay Smile, which is a vampire movie, and vampire movies have always influenced me. So, I went to see that 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 film with with Neil Jenkins and my my girlfriend at the time, Natalie, and he went with his girlfriend, and we went with our kind of fangs and you know full eighties makeup and shit on. So it was it was it was that beautiful teenage moment watching a, a film which felt like it was tailor made for me, and I absolutely loved it. And it was seeing a film at the right moment with the right circumstance. Mm. So everything. Everything felt great. Everything felt so so perfect. But also because at that time I was so so like you know that kind of character, and it was so you know like I say it felt it felt like perfect. But it was in a world where you've got to remember it, this was a pre-internet analog world, and so the first thing I ever even heard about the Lost Boys was seeing a poster at a bus stop, and that meant it was coming on at the cinema like literally the next week. So so it's it not like I had any build up on it. I didn't even know what it was. It was just a vampire film which just looked amazing and. And being into vampire, so it was just like the best. It was just like the best thing ever. It felt like a, a tailor-made movie for me, without any expectation. Went along with my mate, you know, my girlfriend, and it was just, it was just absolutely awesome. So that's one of those reasons. It and it felt like the perfect movie chip, other than going to the cinema with Jane Mansfield. <laughs> okay, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what your second fondest movie memory is that's that's going up against this because this sounds brilliant. It kind of goes along the same, the same theme once again because there's only when 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 I was in Tunbridge Wells as a teenager I was born in London and we moved there when my when I was 5 years old so it was in Kent so that's where I saw a lot of my a lot of the early films I saw until until the stuff that video came out and I started seeing stuff on video was at the cinema so I love the cinema and I've always been a huge you know cinema goer now in Tunbridge Wells which is a pretty kind of conservative boring kind of town in many ways for some reasons that somebody at the cinema programmed the Rocky Horror Picture Show for like a late, not a midnight screening, but it started about 11 or something, but it was all pretty much a midnight screening effectively by the time it rolled, it, was, it came on. So for some reason, when somebody there programmed the Rocky, the Rocky Horror 
show. And it's kind of like, okay, this, we were all into the Rocky Horror Show because we've been watching our video and, and all of my mates, everyone's getting it. So basically this was a cinema where pretty much everybody I knew, all the punks, all the goths, all the cool weirdos, everybody went to the cinema for this interactive performance of Rocky Horror Show where we took our rice and our kind of, you know, rain and, and everyone was dressed up. People were like Regenture and all the rest. So this was all of my, all of my kind of mates. It was like going to you know, your teenage mates. And it's kind of almost like, it almost felt like being in a kind of Stephen King film where, you know, like it was the perfect summer. It was the thing where, (laughs) (laughs) and and one of the reasons I picked that as well, because particularly fondly, um, unfortunately, one of my friends, Graham Franklin, he died when he was 26 years old. So that was some years later. But that was one of the great moments of being with my friend who's no longer around. And it was so much fun, and it was it was like stepping into an alternative universe in Tunbridge Wells because this shit didn't happen, and, <laughs> and it was just outrageous. And we had such a ball there, you know, getting up, dancing, going onto the stuff. It was it was it was off the hook. It was crazy, and it was one of the best nights of cinema ever because it was like having a party with all your mates in a cinema, and it and it was a public screening. And it's like I say that never happened again in Tunbridge. I was just think I think the cinema got a bit too trashed and people were a bit unruly and people were throwing up and also you know it's all those amazing kind of it's like being a John Hughes film <laughs> I love it I, I love it that's because it was an organic thing wasn't it these screenings that start to spring where people start to go we're going to dress up because it was it was didn't get a good reception people didn't go and see it when it first came out and then these late screenings started and people started going we're going to dress up we're going to take rice we're going to do it that way yeah, well, also there were because Rocky Horror became interactive, and we all had the we all had the album, and we knew the responses to you know like you, when a character says something, you 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 shout back, you know, kind of like. <laughs> um, so, so the thing is, we was we were all really into that at the time. So we had been watching Rocky Horror on video, and we've been like had the soundtrack, and we knew all the songs, you know, science fiction and double feature, uh, you know, um, all of that stuff was was part of our kind of DNA as of people into that scene. So. It, it, it was like I say, it was it was just an unusual thing that it happened. But it, when it happened, and it was this, it was almost like this incredible party in a cinema. <laughs> and I've never quite felt that kind of same energy because it was it wasn't a normal, it wasn't a passive sit down and watch the film. It was like we were literally dancing up, getting up. People were just going nuts, and you know, it was just one of those. You bit like this, you know, this the, when the Gremlins were in the cinema in Gremlins. <laughs> I think that would be the closest thing. I wish there had been some footage taken off this event because it, it was kind of like that. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. I, I experience. I, I don't know. I, I went to um, the Prince Charles uh, sing-along uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show only like about three months ago, which is my first time I've ever been to a, a screening where people interact. And even now, it, it's so much fun. Yeah, and exactly. It's one of those things, but if people haven't done it or it's it's a it's a kind of, I suppose it feels like you're part of a kind of community thing, but mm. it's also a thing with its own, once again, it's got its own rituals. It's got its own kind of recalls and responses. And one of the nice things about cinema is that when you become a cinema fan, if you get into the world of that film, you kind of you kind of like feel that, I suppose, part of it. And mm. especially where a film where there is this legacy of interacting with the actual movie in an audience participation way. And, you know, that, that was something completely completely different and mm. it's not it's not a kind of passive cinema going experience and that's one of the reasons i think it it burns into my mind but for all of those reasons about it takes me back to a time you know and i, I mean i love i love going to the cinema i absolutely love it um 
So that was just an ext- one of those extraordinary experiences that you don't normally ever have. But, but I guess it was also because it was in, you know, I would have been like 18 years, pretty, it was 88, I think, that, that that happened. So I was 18 years old and it just felt perfect. And as you said, Tunbridge Wells was a, quite a conservative town. And I think one of the reasons that movie particularly, I think it is still the longest, it has the longest theatrical uh, run in the world because it's still screening today. But I think that is part of the reason the fact that it, it it's got that the reason it's got such a, a a community feel to it is the punk element, the glam element, the sexual fluidity. Yeah, I think so. I mean, definitely the, the film has got you know, it's also got kind of perfect casting and people at the perfect moment. You do, do you know what I mean? Like Tim Tim Curry as Frankenfurter. I mean, Tim Curry, like he's immortalized in he he always is going to be Frankenfurter. Nobody, you know, I've seen people, I've seen the stage play versions or whatever, but nobody can do. Frank of uh, like Tim Curry, but he's at that, you know, when he played it, he was probably in his, what, 20s or early 30s, and he's, he's perfect, you know. Like Richard O'Brien was perfect as Riff, you know, Riff Raff. Um, you know, um, it's everything about it just feels right. So, you know, you've got great actors, you know, people like Susan Sarandon, who's a great actress. She's, she's brilliant in it. Everyone feels right, you know, when you get that thing. And what's interesting, obviously, that film wasn't successful when it was initially released, but then it's gone on to become this massive cult thing. But it's a, it's a cult film in the true sense of the word because it was something that gathered an audience long after its initial run. So it was, it was unusual for a film like that to have a success like that. But yeah, it had all of the kind of kind of counterculture elements. It had all of the. It's got a lot of things in it which sort of are almost like a perfect storm. It's one like one of those things which should never have quite worked, but it did. You know, but the but the sequel that well, the the follow up that, that Richard O'Brien did, Shock Treatment, is a disaster, and it, it it's it's kind of like all of the things that went right for Rocky Horror completely sort of blew past Shock Treatment, and you know nothing to see here moving on. So it's funny sometimes sometimes a film can capture like I say a perfect moment, and I'd say so. Me going to see that film was also another perfect moment. So it kind of brought that it brought that kind of like a strange like I said to you because I'm with Jane Mansfield she would love it as well because she loves music and rock and roll and all the rest of it so you know she's a she's a perfect moment of her own and I guess maybe that's one of the things I like about these very experiential moments in life and I think cinema can do that it's got a real power to kind of get into you and make you feel something yeah I I, one of my I think one of my favorite facts about uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show is that Princess Diana uh, was a fan of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Tim, oh, Curry was she? I didn't. I, I had no idea. I yeah. would never, never have pegged it. But that's the great thing about something like that. You don't know what's gonna. <laughs> See, uh, apparently, t- Tim Curry tells an anecdote uh, as as he is very, very good at doing about how he met her, and uh, she said, uh, she said, with, in his words, with a wicked smile, uh, "You quite completed my education," which is a great quote. <laughs> Yeah, I love Tim Curry. Tim Curry, three of the greatest characters ever brought to the screen. Uh, Frankenfurter, Pennywise the Clown, and Mr. Body. All brilliant. Well, I, also, you've got to, I think you've got to add in also his portrayal of the devil in Legend as well, oh, really. I mean, yeah. it's one of the most extraordinary makeups ever done as well, which is uh, Rob, Rob Bertin, who did the thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that makeup for darkness is, is in, absolutely beautiful i mean it's in, it's incredible you know <laughs> it is it's next level makeup right then um, i'm not going to make you choose jake because both of those stories were so epic we're putting up a poster for the lost boys on one side of the corridor and on the other side the rocky horror picture show so we'll continue down the corridor our next poster that we're putting up jake depicts your worst movie memory 
Okay, now once again, this is this is an impossible thing, and I, I, I spent ages racking my brain on this one, mm. and it's actually I, I find it when I go to the movies, I always try and go to try and have a positive experience. I don't I don't ever try to go in with a negative mindset. Even if I don't like a film, there's always something that you can say which is good about it. I'm not some I don't I'm, as a generally I don't like trashing people's work because I know how I know how difficult it is to make a film and nobody starts off trying to make a film wanting to make a bad film because you still have to put in a, a huge amount of effort to make any movie, you know. So you know, look at Cliff Twemlow stuff. <laughs> you know, right. Like he still had to put in a huge amount of effort just to get a result. Now a lot of people would go, well, that's trashy and it's rubbish. But so I'm not somebody who likes to sort of try and shoot films down. Um so I've I, I kind of struggled this with this one. So I I kind of and I the film that I've picked is because it's the film that's disappointed me most recently. It's the it's the kind of worst experience I've had of any film recently. But that's a lot to do with me as opposed to perhaps the film. But the film I've picked for that is The Exorcist Believer, the new Exorcist film which had just come out. I don't think you're alone in not enjoying that movie. I think a lot of people, it didn't live up to their expectations of what an Exorcist film should be. But per personally for you, why is that? Yeah, well, well you're, you're kind, of, kind of hit the nail on the head because obviously The Exorcist is one of my favourite big you know, big revolving top ten <laughs> lists sort of horror films. Been and because I because I'd watched it recently again, just to you know, because I knew the new one was coming out, so I thought I'd check out the old. And it's such the the original Exorcist is such a great movie, and Friedkin is such a great director, and there's just so much in it which is absolutely beautiful. And you know, but the, the, he really understands what the story is about. You know, it's a you know, it's about the the real story for me is about Father Karras losing his faith it's not it's not so much about even though people tend to think it's about reagan and about it's actually about a guy losing his faith he's trying to battle battle this demon you know which merin has encountered before so but there's so much there's so many beautiful things in it um friedkin in in the documentary he talks he did a documentary where he's interviewed about it and he talks it's one of the best documentaries about filmmaking that by a director in fact that he talks through that film so so beautifully um and he talks about that in a film you need to have grace notes you need to have moments which just just have an inspiring visual moment so and he was saying that the whole the, the whole opening scene you know set in i think it's iraq or iran you know where he, he he meets um azuzu for the first time is full of these little grace notes or when when um uh reagan's mum she's walking through the streets near the beginning and you get the first you know, tubular bells comes up for the first time. There's a shot where she just sees a couple of nuns walking past and their their habits are blustering, like blowing in the wind. And he says, that's a beautiful, it says it's not about plot, it's about feeling. And it's about, this is a little grace note. This is something which gets you into the mood of it. Mm. And I, I really, really think that he's got a beautiful way of looking at how a film flows visually and understands what his story is about on, a, on an inner intuitive level. Now, when I watched Exorcist Believer, having watched, perhaps a perfect horror film in The Exorcist. Exorcist, Exorcist Believer fa failed on so many levels. Exorcist Believer, to me, it felt like it was a film made by, made by a committee where the pitch meeting was, you know, let's, let's get, okay, so what, what was better than having one girl, ex, you know, be, being possessed? Having two girls being possessed at once. <laughs> what, what was better than having a professional exorcist coming in, coming in and doing the exorcism? 
anyone can do an exorcism. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think maybe at a pitch meeting or whatever, you can sort of feel executives and corporate fit. And that, this could be completely wrong. So if Jason Blum, if you're watching, I'm sorry. But for, but for me, it felt like a tick box exercise. And, and I don't know if, if anyone has recently watched um, uh, South Park and <laughs> joining the pandaverse <laughs> if, if you've watched that it's about where kathleen kennedy is, is is taking over the world a world through alternative dimensions and through her multiverse and you know like a, it, it kind of feels the exorcist believer feels like it was possibly made in the pandaverse <laughs> i love it and I, I agree with you it's you don't really you don't want to trash the filmmakers i don't want to trash the filmmakers i'll tell you who doesn't mind trashing of the filmmakers especially towards the end of his career and sadly his life was William Friedkin. Uh, there was a, a wonderful quote during the rounds on Twitter that he told a film critic, uh, the guy who made those new Halloween sequels is about to make one to my movie. That's right. My signature film is about to be extended by the man who made Pineapple Express. Which... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that I think that Friedkin kind of probably hits the nail on the head with that because ultimately I think that anyone who has watched the original Exorcist and loves it, no one really feels a need for a a new trilogy of Exorcist no. movies. And you know, Exorcist movies, like I say, they they feel like photocopies and cliche scenes. And the problem is when when Friedkin for the, for me the issue is more when Friedkin made the original Exorcist. He wasn't trying to make an exorcism film. He was making a film about something. It was a, it was about the characters. About it was about this story. It was about belief. It was about you know like um you know the, is there something beyond rational? But and it's a very obviously the the, the book William by William P, Peter Blatty is a beautiful bit of writing. But two very serious minded guys with a lot to say and a lot on their minds, with incredible performances and amazing actors. Whereas you know when you look at Exorcist Believer. It feels like it's a film made for teenagers, and it feels like a it feels like a it feels like an exorcism film, which has all of the cliche exorcist moments in it that you expect, and then a few daft things which are kind of new things. But it doesn't feel that it really has a deep story on the same way the original Exorcist has. So I think William Friedkin, you know, and obviously he's got more of the right to shoot people down. And like I say, I'm not trying to shoot down David Gordon Green. I'm actually. I just don't think it was made for the same reason, you know, because they, they bought the franchise for 400 million. They're trying to do the most commercial kind of like um, tick box exercise to try and get bums on seats. And I, I get that, from, but but from an intuitive filmmaking, I would rather just, they just left the freaking film as it was. It didn't need it. But then again, you know, Exorcist 2, two the heretic is also a disaster. Well, <laughs> although, although Exorcist 3 is not bad. I don't mind. No, Exodus Free, Free is great, but yeah. the studio also wanted to fuck with that because that was Pete, William Peter Blatty who directed that one. Yeah. And, you know, it was based on his book Legion. And they, of, of course, because it was, they decided to call it Exodus Free, not Legion, mm. they then had to enforce that he had to have an exorcism in it. And he didn't actually <laughs> want it, he didn't want it to be the Exodus Free, he wanted it to be Legion. But so the studio messed around with that as well. So that that's a film that got fucked with, and there's a better version of it. Um, I think Arrow released his his yeah. cut, which is you know it's been reconstructed from different materials. But once again, the studio is always if they get you know back in the day when we were when I was a teenager, it would you know it wasn't like this is an IP and we're going to build a brand around it. It was just something that popped up at the cinema. The Lost Boys just popped up at the sort of bus stop. And then it was at the cinema. You know, it wasn't, it, it didn't feel such a cynical exercise in trying to make money. Of course, it 
probably was from a studio level, but it felt that there was a lot more original stuff coming through the pipe. Now we're in a world of it has to be an existing IP. It's got to be your kind of legacy thing. It's got to be bloody. And it, there's something, there's this sort of corporate corporatization of filmmaking, which to me seems to have ripped the, the kind of beating heart out of the things that used to make these things visceral and fun. And it's kind of that over corporatized type feeling that I get when I watch certain movies. And I think that the Exist, the, you know, the, the recent Exist Believer, that was disappointing to me because it felt like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of something which was brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I think I think you hit the nail on the head as well when you said uh, it's it's Father Karras' story because I think anyone who's seen it and this is going to be a spoiler, so close your ears. But it was 1975, I believe, three yeah. something yeah. like, and, and so I'm going to do it. But the most powerful scene for me, the scene that breaks me, the scene that makes me cry, is obviously where Father Dyer, Father Dyer, is standing over Karras's body at the end, and he's weeping like because like this man has sacrificed himself and. And it's and it's the end of Father Karras' story, and just that moment where his friend, who is his genuine friend, which is a weird thing that Exorcist Three does, where they go, no, the police officer was his best friend. You like they had one scene together in The Exorcist, but apart from <laughs> that, like that moment is just so moving. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you, and it's and like I say, but the, the authenticity of those performances and the the beauty of the casting in The Exorcist, the first film, is is stunning, and it's got a real, it's got something. Once again, it's that perfect storm of events. I mean, Friedkin even reflects is he just said that everything that he did on that film, everything went went right. Like for instance, like um Jason Miller wasn't supposed to be Father Karras. No. And he saw him in a stage play and he and Jason Miller came to him and said, I am that character. I can do it. And it, he ended ended up getting himself uh, he managed to get a um a, a screen test to do the character because they had and 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 Friedkin was saying you can't look we can't. I can't have you. I've I've already cast Stacey Keach in this role. He'd cast Stacey Keach as as Karras, mm. and literally it ended up that he saw this screen test that Jason Miller had done, and he went, "He's right. This guy is for five. So that he ended up t convincing the studio to pay off. Stacey Keach had to be paid his full fee to not be in The Exorcist <laughs> because the, and this was an unknown actor, a guy that he had seen in a stage play, had written a play, and he wasn't. Jason Miller wasn't a known actor, but. He's so, but Friedkin went with his gut and he said, with, with Exorcist, he, it just all felt, he just, all of these strange coincidences, all these things came together. And it's, once again, when a film becomes a classic, you know, when you make a film, you realize that there's so many kind of elements of play. There's so much kind of chaos going on that to, for, it, for, for it to come together and be that perfect storm, to be that, that movie, which becomes something which people are going to go, this is, this is incredible it does take a huge string of like coincidences and energies and it's so when you when a film like yeah the exorcist and we know it's a stone cold classic it, it it happened because of so many different factors because of the actors because of the music because and once again he 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 had to fire the, the music yeah he had um a different musician who did the score on it as well um, it was someone like I think it was someone like Lalo Schifrin or someone like that, who, and they completely got it wrong, and he he then dismissed them, and he <laughs> like there's all sorts of strange stories, like um like I say that the documentary with Freakin talking about his making of The Exorcist, so I can't remember the name of it, but if a, any filmmaker should watch it, it's a it's a beautiful piece of work about a director describing his process and and in, enriching the film with with his like knowledge and his intuitive kind of understanding of what he's doing. Um, 
and it's fascinating to watch. And Friedkin is a very interesting director. I mean, he's made some great movies. So he really, he's somebody that you, you when he speaks, you, it is worth listening to, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, I highly recommend both that and The Exorcist. I wish I could highly recommend Exorcist Believer, but I can't. So that has to go in my my unsatisfactory pile, alas. After such wonderful uh, The Exorcist chat as well, it seems it seems almost uh, uncomfortable to have to put up a poster for The Exorcist Believer as though your worst movie memory. So let's clarify. Yeah, that I'm just going to say to Jane, just don't look at that poster. We're just going to walk past that one. Just don't don't look at it. Jane, you know, the girl can't help it. She's going to look, isn't she? But yeah. The minute you say don't look, so you look. That's, that's yeah, a rule. Yeah, you've got to look. Don't look yeah. now. <laughs> All right. Another absolute cool girl. That is a great, yeah. Yeah. Let's carry on down the corridor. So the third poster I'm going to put up depicts, Jake, the last performance that brought you to tears. Yeah. Well, this is, once again, this is, um, it's it's interesting because obviously it's you're always wanting to have a performance which is going to really take you there. And the the performance recently, which I was most moved by, was by Sophie Wilde in the new in the Australian horror film Talk to Me. I don't know if you've seen it. I, I have, yeah. I actually had uh, Danny and Michael Filippo on the show talking about it. Right. Okay. Yeah, because it's an incredible piece of work. Um, mm. It's the best horror film this year. It's the best horror film of many years. Once again, I actually think it's going to be a classic horror film. It's. If anyone hasn't seen it, they should go. And they, I think it's now on Netflix, actually. I, I saw it at the cinema. I saw it at the, the Bromley Picture House recently. And it's th- this year, this is the horror film that stuck out for me. And, and But a lot of that is because of Sophie Wilde's performance. Um, it is just incredible. She completely knocks out of the park. I mean, and I'm sure she's been acting for years, but I've never seen her in anything before. And maybe she's in Australia. But, but the performance is just incredible. And... Uh, you know, not wanting to spoil the film, but there's this. The, the, the basic premise is is that there's a, some dead medium's hand, and if you if you clutch the hand and you light a candle and you you count to a certain amount, I think it's a minute or something, you get possessed by a spirit. A spirit can come back and get into you, and that sounds almost kind of like a hokey idea, but the way it's done, it's done so scary, so authentically, kind of um, you know, it, it feels it's got it, it's a it's a film that you feel. It's got. It's infected by the supernatural because it mm. feels scary. It's. It's one of the. It's one of the only films I've been in 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 my in my memory for many years where some a, another guy was in there with his girlfriend sitting a few seats over from us, and I could see she was getting disturbed by it to the point where about 35, 36 minutes in, she couldn't take it and she had to leave. And you could see this. You could see he was gutted because he wanted to watch the film. So there was, and it wasn't a walkout because they. But she was frightened, and it had that. And I've not seen that in a horror film for ages. I've, ne- I've <laughs> never seen that. I mean, you've heard stories about that where, like, I th- often it's a marketing ploy where they go, "Yeah, we screened it for a focus group, and people were fainting, people were walking out, one woman threw up." Um, but to actually see it happening in the real world, that's incredible. Yeah, and exactly. And, and this was a this was a screening, like a kind of like evening screening, eight o'clock, whatever. And yep. it was it was during it was a week. It was like a Wednesday or something like that. So it wasn't even a particularly busy night. So it wasn't like there was a. That's why I was more. It was they were more noticeable because they were like a few seats over. So the cinema was only probably about a quarter full. So that but I could see that this she was like disturbed, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. This film <laughs> is having an impact, you know. But but part of that impact comes from you know um, Sophie's performance is yeah. so so strong. And she emotes. I mean, she's at a level where she genuinely feels possessed. She genuinely feels lost. Is it and, a spoiler to tell us the moment that 
actually made you cry though the minute that you were brought to tears well i think it well it's it's actually i think it's it, for me it was a combination of the whole thing and mm. and it's 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 not like a, it's 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 not tears in the in the kind of like a like an overly saccharine movie where they're really playing it what it was is right it's to me it was it was it was the end moment when she becomes you know i don't want to spoil it but yeah. because she's effectively become completely lost would be the a way of saying it good way without giving it. anything away yeah. but it's also the desolate everything that she's been through to become kind of a victim of that thing when she just wanted to get answers about you know things in her personal life and it felt it, it felt shocking in the way that don't look now had it had that thing of like it it, it felt like a true horror film it, it you know a horror film with a downbeat difficult dark ending that mm -hmm. didn't feel the need to give you loads of explanations or whatever and you just felt it and i felt I felt the character because I really, really liked her as a character, and it was a performance that had so many beautiful little notes of, of subtleties and and humanity, and also the way she could play the horror and the responding to the fear and then becoming taken over. It's it's an incredible performance, nuanced. I mean, if you got to work with an actor like that, then you know you you spoke to the directors, so what. Can you tell me a little bit what they said about her? Because she's extraordinary, I thought, in the film. Yeah, I, I think we talked a lot about the fact that, you know, it's kind of what you've just said. Considering it is a, a, a horror movie that deals with the supernatural, specifically possession, the naturalism of her performance, the fact that she seems like a very real person, grounded in reality, that makes the horror all the more scary because there's nothing hokey about it because you're like, this. she seems like a, a real person that then in turn makes the horror seem real well exactly and i think also because it's set in australia and that's not we don't have a lot of references on australia as well mm. in terms of like pop culture and whatever and because also the cast is a cast of unknowns that also adds to the absolute reality the, the, this feeling of reality because when you have a, a well-known movie star playing a character you're aware of their other work as well with with Sophie Wilde in this, because I've never seen her in anything else. Yeah. It's a defining performance for her. I mean, the rest of the cast are great as well, but she's particularly she's particularly great and she's the focus of this storyline. But it's it's so that's the performance recently. You know, it's not that I was in front of tears, but I could feel like it was like I was I was sad for her. And it was a it was an emotive emotive performance. And I think if people watch it to see that level of craft in such a young actress is incredible. So that was touching for me, you know, and I'm pretty sure Jane is going to love this as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really valid point, isn't it? You know, I, because obviously there are big stars in the world and that's why, you know, people sometimes, not so much anymore, <laughs> there's not really many movie stars left, but it's why people go and see a movie because they like this actor. But what comes with the actor is baggage. And when you see a performance from an actor who you've never seen before, like they are the character. They are that character because you ha you haven't seen them in anything else. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, in a weird way, we could also say that it's a bit like Jason Miller in The Exorcist because mm -hmm. I've only seen him in a couple of other films, like I think Ninth Configuration and um, Exorcist 3. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but beyond that, it's not like I don't have many references to him because he is literally Father Karras. And that's the first time I ever saw him. That's the defining. And I'm sure, obviously, I'm pretty sure Sophie Wilde is going to go on and, and, and do many, many characters. But as as a kind of for seeing her for the first time in such an effective horror movie, such a great, really well crafted, scary horror movie, mm. it, it you know talk to me is everything that that Exorcist believer isn't. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's like because everything came right 
on Talk To Me and you can see it, but it didn't feel that it was made by committee looking at it and it wasn't based on an existing IP and legacy character. It, it wasn't it wasn't hampered by any of the kind of bullshit factors that 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 sort of created the dissatisfaction with a film like a, a franchise sequel because, you know, so we've talked to me and I'm, I'm sure they're probably going to do a follow-up because of the extraordinary success of it. But if they do, I imagine it's more going to be about maybe where that hand came from as opposed to Sophie. But but I'm sure they would want to bring her back because she's so incredible in it. I, I feel that they were, from talking to them, they were very much left alone to make the movie because it was small budget. And obviously it's success. Uh, their next movie, they're uh, making a new adaptation of Street Fighter, the video game. So touch wood, they're left alone on that. To still yeah, well, I mean, in a sense, that sounds like... They're not going to be left alone on a. All right, <laughs> be- I mean that's because what you it's think. an ex- like I say, it, that and I completely understand why they were to do that, and I'm sure they're big Street Fighter fans as well, and they pretty love the game. But see that because by stepping into like they're they're they're, they're 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 stepping into this existing world of an IP where it's much harder to get that satisfying because the audience expectation is so different based on that as well. Mm. So I really, I wish them success with that and I hope it's great because they're good film, they're great filmmakers. So I think that they, they can do something interesting. But to me, I, I'm not excited by a, a Street Fighter film particularly. <laughs> I'm no. never- <laughs> You know, but yeah. I'll watch it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, then our third poster we're putting up is for Talk to Me. And here it's time for our final poster before we leave the corridor and enter the auditorium. And this final poster, Jake, depicts your unpopular movie opinion. Well, the thing is, is once again, I had to wrap my brain about this one because there's probably loads of films that I like which may not, let's say, be popular. But so I've I've picked one which historically got panned by all the critics at the time, and I don't know if you've seen it, but it's Hudson Hall. Oh, you've got the DVD. You've got the DVD there, which is Bruce Bruce Willis. Yeah, and um, so this is his vanity project, right? Or so it was called. This was this is Bruce Willis's vanity project, and and there's there's lots of things wrong with Hudson Hall, and when you realise it was a vanity project, you can almost sort of sniff it. You can, you can. <laughs> You know, but there's something incredibly joyful. It's one of, for, for a film which is considered a, a bomb, it's one of the most entertaining, <laughs> it's, what, it's one of the most entertaining kind of movies which is regarded as a, as a kind of bad movie. So I would like to help kind of revive its reputation. I've got a couple of friends who also really love Hudson yeah. Hawk. And that we would love to see the original director's cut as well because the studio messed around with it. It got fucked about with, and you know, obviously Bruce was at the height of his fame, and you know, you know, got out of control. And but the film has got a great sense of of joy and 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 absolute fun in it. And um, you know, there's 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 some beautiful casting. It's got um, Danny Aiello in it, who is, I love him as a character actor. Um, he's also one of my favourite horror movies, which a lot, a lot of people have seen, Jacob's Ladder as well, which is another terrific film, Adrian Lyme movie. But but uh, Danny's great. The, 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 you can see that him and Bruce are friends because you get this feeling of friendship. Mm. But it's got the most, like I say, the, the, like the opening robbery where they time their robberies out to famous songs, Swinging on a Star, and you've got <laughs> da- Danny Aiello. And, and it's just, it's really, really great fun. I mean, I absolutely love it. And You've got some of these incredibly, once again, great character people in it. You know, Rishdi Grant as the bad guy, you know, actually eating, just chewing up the scenery. But, you know, th- this is after, you know, after Withnow and I and How to Get Had in Advertising, he's doing this one of these, he's doing the kind of classic 
mad (laughs) performances that that only someone like Richard E. Grant can do because he's very specific. And you've got Sandra Bernhard in it, the American kind of comedian, and she's fucking hilarious as well. So you've got all of these incredible talents in there and you've, you've got this really sort of, you know, historical plot involving, you know, kind of getting Leonardo's inventions. But basically the story is about basically because, um, you know, basically Hudson Hawk wants to have a, his coffee. <laughs> right. So it's actually about a guy who just wants to have a cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, I want to, I want to join your campaign, sign the petition, do whatever it is to get this director's cut release because it was Michael Lehman as well. And his yeah, it's Michael Lehman. And I think it's the script writer is, um, I think it's Daniel yeah. Waters, isn't yeah. it? Who um, gave us Heathers? Yeah, exactly. And Daniel Waters is a fascinating writer. So what I'm saying, this film has a load of great, like I say, if you look at this film, it's got incredible scenes in it. It's, yeah. it's beautifully done. And once you, maybe from the perspective of us not, Bruce Willis is no longer like a big star who was a, he was on TV, we knew him from TV and whatever. So we don't, we don't care that it's a Bruce Willis vanity project now. It's just a, it's a film that somehow got made and exists and it is <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> and it's got all of this incredible casting and it's, it's set in beautiful places like in Italy and it's got, yeah. it's got amazing location work in it. And it's actually very, really, really funny as well. I think. I mean, I find it hilarious. But I, I would, I would love to, I would love to see a director's cut. And there were apparently many different cuts of this, and there must be much longer versions out there. I don't think that there's a big clamour for it generally. But if you can start <laughs> the campaign, Alex, we could, we could maybe get that out. <laughs> I, I, I'm into it. I mean, I know one person who's a who's a fan. Uh, uh, so we're in good company. Mark Commode is a fan of this movie. Um, uh, and apparently once said to Richard E. Grant uh, that he he was one of the few people that liked this movie. And how's this for a Richard E. Grant response? He said to Mark Commode, it was a stinking pile of steaming hot donkey droppings and you are an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, you've got to love, you've got to love him for saying that, haven't right. you? <laughs> Yeah. But but when you watch Richard E. Grant's performance, isn't it? It's like watching it's like watching a kind of um, a Jack Nicholson performance where Jack's off the hook. It's kind of like it's even though he may Richard E. Grant may well because he probably remembers being on set and all of that all of the kind of bullshit that was happening at the time, and it probably yeah. was a nightmare. And in fact, I would like to see a documentary about the making of Hudson Hawk. Oh. Kind of you know that would be on all the the kind of bad behaviour and craziness which was clearly going on in that film. There you, you know go. you know yeah. <laughs> that's what you want. It does. It sounds nightmarish. I mean, you're you're obviously a, a, a film director. You've had experiences, but the idea of your leading man, who is the, also the most powerful man on set, turning up every day with, in inverted commas, new ideas. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh no, I mean, but you can tell that the, for the people working on that film, it would have been an absolute horror show. <laughs> but it was surprising if you watch Hudson Hawk and you don't know anything about that. When yeah. you watch the film, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like that though. You know, <laughs> so this is the thing. It feels like say it's really really entertaining because the script, like I say, Daniel Waters, he did Heather's. He also he also wrote Batman Returns, which is another one of my favourite Batman films. You know, the yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman one. And Daniel Waters is a great writer you know he's a brilliant quirky writer with all these strange characters and there's there are loads and loads of really oddball characters in in the film you know in Hudson Hawk so mm-hmm. like I say and I I really like it but it reminds me of a time I guess when the the, the this idea of like a kind of yeah successful movie star like a going to excess and, and, and like really pissing everybody off with something <laughs> you know but it's it's but unlike say say like a film like Dick Tracy I mean I I can't watch it like that was a Warren Beatty 
like passion project. And yep. that that went that that went over budget with reshoots because he was his vanity and whatever. And that cost hun- like hun- over a hundred million at a time when movies didn't cost that much. It's something like that. But Hudson Hawk is another one of those ones. But when you actually watch the film, the film is really entertaining, and that's the difference. Whereas I find someone like Dick Tracy hard to watch. You know. Yeah. Uh, agreed, agreed. And I, I think segued uh, into that uh, discussion just then was another unpopular movie opinion, which we'll probably have to discuss in person at some times. But I agree with you. I think Batman Returns is hands down still the best Batman movie, full stop. Uh, yeah, I love that movie. It's absolutely, it's got, it, once again, that's got a beautiful heart to it and oh. the heartbreak of, of you know, the Selena Carl, you know, character so beautifully played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Once yep. again, perfect casting. But the kind of heartbreak when there's these two, you know, basically they're two like weirdos who don't understand life and they can't even have a romance because, but they do understand each other. And there is that beautiful scene where you really, when, when she's all big draggled at the end with her mask half ripped up and there's a, there's a, I, I love it. And it's also got Christopher Walken in it as well. Yeah, so good. So <laughs> it's it's good. kind of like, it's, but, but, you know, but, that, that's, this to me, that's, you know, obviously, I, I grew up with seeing those movies. You know, I, I saw Batman Returns at the cinema probably about five times. Yeah. Uh, you know, I absolutely love that film. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Daniel Waters, though, once again, see, for Hudson Hawk, I knew it was written by Daniel Waters at the time. And I lo- all the Daniel Waters stuff I like. So, it's got that Daniel Waters quirkiness in it, despite all of Bruce's ideas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, then. So, the campaign to get either a behind the scenes documentary or a director's cut of Hudson Hawk released it begins now but i'm putting up a poster for 1991's bruce willis movie hudson hawk is your unpopular movie opinion we've reached the last set of doors jake so uh, i will say before we push them open uh, there is a, a line of people hoping to join you and jane mansfield in the auditorium do you want a full auditorium do you want that communal experience or do you want to just keep jane mansfield all to yourself well, as much as I would love to keep Jay Mansfield all to myself, I think you need a communal experience in a cinema. The best, the best times I've ever had in a cinema where you've had a massive audience. And mm. once again, that's something that has perhaps been lost in a sense because we're so used to watching films at home. And when you're in a cinema, you, you don't quite get the sense of, of an audience community that perhaps I felt when I was going, when I was younger, because it was, it was always a, like, and it was very experiential. So the, the, the joy of a big audience is more something you now tend to feel more at film festivals when you're at screenings because there's a more palpable excitement about watching a movie. Whereas when you go to movies down your local multiplex now, that it doesn't feel as special perhaps for the audience going in. And a lot of that is because they don't have the curtains opening up. <laughs> <laughs> we We have solved... Every exhibitor's yeah. problem uh, yeah, on this episode. Yeah, if they just get the curtains opening up again, they could, you know, they bring some magic back into it. Like, yeah. what are they revealing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, the only time I've experienced it recently, and I, I think you're right, is um, is Barbie and Oppenheimer, just because it became this sort of this social media thing, the the Barbenheimer thing, and that weekend going to see those movies was in, impact auditoriums. Yeah, no, and it was amazing because there were people at the cinema dressed up as. Barbie. Yeah, exactly. I didn't see many as Oppenheimer, but <laughs> but, but, but no, but it was incredible. But, it, but it's something that kind of seeped into the into the consciousness, didn't it? And it did feel that there was something special happening. And having the right crowd, having a full audience, and having a, a proper audience experience does elevate the film because it it lifts the, lifts the material. Because something's funnier when there's that you know like five hundred other people laughing at the same time at it, and it and it lifts everybody's spirits. And the, there is there's something to be said for a communal experience where you can't stop the film, you can't pause it, you can't go back, 
you know, which is brilliant unless you want to go to the toilet. That's why vodka jelly is good because, you know, you don't have to need to pee. <laughs> <laughs> right then, we're letting the crowd in. They go wild. They're pouring into the auditorium. So there are a few things we're going to do before we get to the movie you picked for us tonight. And the first thing we're going to do is play the trailer for the movie that you are most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. Well, once again, there's there's... There's two at the moment, and okay. one is only going to be at cinemas for like the next two weeks, I think. It came out this week because it's going to be on Netflix, and it's the new David Fincher film. Oh, with, yes. With, with um, Michael Fassbender, and it's yeah. called The Killer. Yeah. And now I've actually avoided watching the trailer on it because I find that trailers give away too much <laughs> these days. And I like going, and the, the, one, the great thing about going to see if going back to the thing about seeing a film with a festival audience. And if, often you're seeing a film before there's any marketing campaign, before there's any trailer. So you get to see the film in a purer state because I, I, because I also, you know, I work, I worked as a, I still do often, I freelance as a trailer editor as well. So I, I cut trailers. So I know the problem is, is that a trailer to me reveals too much of a film these days. And I, so if I can see a movie without seeing the trailer. Now, the reason I'm excited to be the killer is because it's, it's it's David David Fincher who is you know one of the greatest contemporary directors of our time. Michael Fassbender, an incredible actor who I absolutely love his style of acting and his performances. You know, so those two those two guys making a movie, which is a Netflix, it's a Netflix film. So literally, I think in like twelfth of November or something, it's on Netflix, so everyone can see it then. So literally, I've got a window of like this week and next week, but I've got to go and see it. So I'm planning to go and see that up next yeah. so i've got to see that quickly the master you, killer I, I'm, I'm not again not trashing netflix or a streamer but to piggyback what you're saying it's a freaking david fincher movie like his visual style is so magnificent you you're gonna want to see that on the big screen surely absolutely i mean because this is one of the greatest sort of living filmmakers as well certainly done some extraordinary work anyway if you you know like you look at seven you look at fight club and that's like I say, I, so I haven't actually watched the trailer. So if you put the trailer up, I've actually avoided watching the trailer because I wanted to see it without <laughs> seeing the trailer, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's 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 very exciting. Um, and it's also like Michael Fassbender's first movie for, what, seven years? He's yeah, exactly, which is weird. But I, so I don't know what he's been up to, but I'm sure he's been having fun. Uh, it's kind of it's it's kind of awesome and heartbreaking at the same time. So he's he's been racing cars. He wanted to get himself up to the level where he could compete in the Le Mans 24-hour race. Oh, wow, I didn't realise that. So yeah. he's going He's, going he's the, done it. He port. did it last year. And unfortunately, the heartbreaking thing is when you realise like, he spent sort of five years getting to the point where he can do the race, he crashes out in Le Mans, which like you watch it and you really feel for him. But... Wow. I know. I, I had no idea about that. So that's that's fascinating. So he's going down a kind of... Um kind of uh, Steve McQueen kind of Paul Newman type Eric Banner, driving route. <laughs> I think we did it as well, yeah. Um, right then, so The Killer is one trailer. What's the second trailer? I'm letting you have two trailers. Well, the second trailer as well, because both of these films are coming out soonish, but it's Napoleon by Ridley Scott. Now, nobody does epic, big epic, large-scale historical cinema like Ridley Scott. And, you know, Ridley's one of the, the you know, he's as, you know some of his he can vary between films but he is always an interesting director to watch mm. you know and he, you know and Ridley I mean I've, I've I had the pleasure to go to a, a lecture which he did for Directors UK and he he talked for a couple of hours about his the way he makes films and his background and how he got there 
And he's one of the most interesting, fascinating people to listen to as a director talking about his craft and because he's done so much work. And he's he's also one of the, the kind of strongest kind of characters who can he can work he can work with studios, he can work with big actors, and he can tell them what to do, not be told. So he, you know, he's he has control. He's like a, the equivalent of, a, I guess, a Friedkin in you know in the modern era. He's one of the few directors with power who can also stage huge, huge scenes. Like so, and Napoleon from the trailer, which I have seen because you know I, I went and saw the the new Scorsese fi- film, and the trailer came on, and I thought, wow, this looks this looks great. But I do try to avoid trailers. But you, when I go to the cinema, I can't often. But the, the killer trailer hasn't come up in the cinema. And obviously, I mean, Ridley Scott has made some of my favorite movies including one of my all-time favorites which I don't know I think I might mention it later but Ridley Scott as a director you know because he's been consistently throughout my entire life making movies and he's associated with some of my favorite films as a director I could I have to watch his work so I, I, I still get a sense of excitement that there's a new Ridley Scott film coming out yeah I mean it is it's it's very Napoleon's exciting because obviously you know he's no stranger to historical epics you know you've got gladiator um not the not the theatrical cut but the uh, the director's cut of kingdom of heaven is yeah ama- it's amazing. way way better yeah so much better yeah. and this yeah and I'm so pleased they changed the name they I, I read uh that originally it was it was going to be called kit bag uh, which, yeah, based on that some, sounds a bit like a low budget film, doesn't it? It, it really does. It sounds like maybe a Channing Tatum comedy <laughs> drama set in a gym. Uh, this yeah. is Kitbag <laughs> from but, the from the director of Kitbag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, do, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound a historical epic. That's for sure. It's something to do with a famous saying about how in every soldier's bag, in every soldier's kit bag, is a, is a general staff or something. But no one has. I've never heard that saying, and I'm like, well, I guess, I guess now when that that bit comes up in the film, I'm going to appreciate it even more. <laughs> now you've told me the film could have been called Kitbag, so that's going to give the that's going to give that that little line a, a huge resonance for me, and I'm going to I'm going to cheer and think of you alex <laughs> <laughs> thank you thanks jake yeah um I, that's really interesting you went to a big uh, talk by ridley scott I, i've only ever been able to sit down with him two or three times to interview him and the last one was exodus and i asked him why he hired actors like why do you hire actors like uh, christian but no and um, i said uh, do you uh, do you engage with actors a lot on set do you are you an actor's director and he said he said no i hire i hire people like um Joel Edgerton and Christian Bale because they know what the fuck they're doing and I don't need to talk to them and I can concentrate on everything else in the shop. Yeah, but but I, but you can understand what, where Ridley's coming from that mm. because actually if you're working with great actors, they generally don't need much direction because they understand the script, they understand the character. Mm. And it's actually, you know, a, a director isn't an acting coach. A director is just trying to get their vision of the film made. So, you know, when, when you're working with good talent then you intuitively they're going to get it right and they're going to bring they're going to add to it they're not going to take away so that's what every director wants and i understand where but ridley is incredibly practical because also he's he's always doing stuff on a big scale and you know anyone who's worked with extras like having having just like 15 20 extras is a pain in the ass having a thousand or two whatever on a big battle scene that Every time you need to move or reset or whatever, it's it's a it's everything takes so much time and it's so difficult. So if you've got an actor that then can't give a performance, <laughs> then you're you've got all of the you know and the, and the, the level that Ridley's working at 
he is incredibly practical and he's tough. I mean, you've you've spoke to him. You oh, know, yeah. He's a no nonsense guy, and he, mm. you know, you get the feeling he's going to sort of bite your head off. But but he has <laughs> real authority though, and I think he is one of those few directors who who has that. He brings that with him, but he's also an incredible visualist. You know, how many? Like for instance, you the in Gladiator, the shot of the of, of um, Russell Crowe's hand going through the corn. How many films have ripped off that single image? <laughs> yeah. I, I ripped it off in Evil Aliens, my second movie. <laughs> I've got an alien hand doing it. Maybe Ridley nicks it from another director. I just haven't seen where he nicks it from. <laughs> but but as far as I got, as far as I know, that's the first time I ever saw that shot. And B- 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 Ridley sets up these sort of precedents of visuals, you know, like um, you know, in Alien and Blade Runner and all these films. So he's got such a vision for stuff as a director. Sometimes, like some of some films of his, are, are hit and miss. But there's always amazing bits of cinema crafting in all of Ridley's films. So as a director, there's a it's like sucking the marrow out of it. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> you know. So that's why I'm excited for Napoleon. This is a Ridley Scott film, and that's an event for me. This is going to be a big bit of cinema, and I really hope uh, I hope it lives up to it because I really I, I love it when Ridley gets it right because it's going to be. It's going to be like awe-inspiring. So, but we'll see. I mean, obviously, it's not out yet. So, by the time people are watching this, then they may have watched it and go, "I don't know why he's looking forward to that." <laughs> <laughs> right. That is two trailers we're playing. First of all, David Fincher's The Killer, and second of all, Ridley Scott's Whacking Phoenix, starring Napoleon. All right. The next thing we're going to play on the big screen is the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air. <laughs> are you yeah, are you um, are you are you a fist pumper or would you just metaphorically well, I, do it? I, I'm I'm probably more of a metaphorical fist pumper. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, maybe doing a bit of music is more of a kind of fist pump. But, sure. but in the cinema, I'm probably less likely. To, but the but this is I, I saw this film in the cinema. I think it I think it must have been 86, 16 years old when I was there. And and I actually I made the mistake of actually going on a date with a girl that I took to cinema for the first time. We we're 16 years old, and we sat in the back row, and we were we weren't there to watch the film. Unfortunately, the film I picked to go and see was Aliens. Oh my God! <laughs> you couldn't look away from the screen. She was, was, I couldn't look but, away from the screen. It's one of the most amazing. It's one of the most amazing films I've ever seen. Yeah. So I so, you know, went there with this date, and I wasn't paying attention to her. So that went badly. That date, the date was a <laughs> was a complete complete failure and she was really pissed off at me and she didn't enjoy the film and I was like this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen mm. and the the moment that I think is an absolute it's an absolute classic moment of cinema is when you know w- after being kind of terrorized by these aliens and all of the kind of like the the, the she has to literally descend back in you know she descends back into hell to fight the alien queen and it's when she 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 gets into the the power loader you know, the kind of exoskeleton power loader mm. And she she walks in, dum dum dum, the kind of silhouette backlit. Get away from her, you bitch! And the whole audience is yes, <laughs> fucking right, you know. Oh, and that is that is one of the most joyful moments because it it comes at exactly the right point, and we exact we know how she feels, you know. She we and she's there, she's there to protect Newt, and she's there to save her from this alien queen. And it is an extraordinary, powerful, brilliant, audience pleasing moment. And I don't I don't know you can get better than that. I'm sure there's moments which are maybe the equivalent of it, but that's one of the moments where if I, when I watch that film, I all, I always love it. And I am metaphorically, in fact, next time I watch it, I'm actually going to do the, I'm going to do the fist pump. <laughs> yeah. I've, uh, I've, uh, I've had stand up rounds with people about 
the fact that I truly believe aliens is better than alien. And we don't have to do this now because I, it, 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 I, I don't know what, where your, what your stance well, the thing is, on is it. I, I can give you a really clear, a really clear kind of easy, easy guide to that argument. Okay. Because I, I understand exactly what you're saying, but alien is a horror film. Aliens is a sci-fi action film, mm. so you know, they're actually they're different. They're actually different genres, and the, the reason that 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 those the two films are, are brilliant is because they're both at the pinnacle of of their own genre. Mm. Because there wasn't there's no sci-fi action movie like Aliens, and the whole you know the whole like the the Marines going up against an, an unstoppable force mm. is brilliant because it all feels authentic. And James Cameron is so good at that. But because but but what the reason that they're both brilliant is because both Ridley and Cameron are both brilliant world builders and we believe the world that they're in so I, I don't think you need to argue about it because one's a horror film and one's a sci-fi action movie and they're delivering different feelings and that's what that's why there's there's not like a fist pump moment so much in in alien because it's a scarier darker haunted house film jake that is such a good answer and if i wasn't so petty i would not ever have another argument about it, but I, I can't promise I won't, despite the fact that that is the intelligent way of approaching what is better, alien or aliens. I, I just don't know. Well, it doesn't answer the question which is better, but <laughs> because they're both brilliant. The point is, I think that they're different. That's all I meant. <laughs> yeah. But personal preference is always the thing, you know. The point is, but, they're, but they're so aliens different. has got the fist yeah. pump moment for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, have you ever watched that bit you just described, which I love the way you described it, of uh, Ridley, um, Ridley, uh, Ripley going back into hell to rescue Newt? Um, have you ever watched? the bit that Cameron cut uh, where she discovers Burke with a chest burster implanted in him. Yes, I've seen. Uh, yeah, but it was the, 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 there's the, the, the deleted scene and that's yeah. a great scene as well. I mean, it's a, uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming that I, I get the feeling it might have only been cut for length, not for content. I mean, I don't know if the, I, think, I can't think, remember why it was cut. I think I read somewhere that James Cameron cut it because it didn't fit with the aliens, uh, timeline of how long it takes for someone to be oh, the impregnated. gestation period yeah 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 so the yeah. chest burster was coming out too soon if he included that scene which i really respect because it's a good scene ripley hands him a grenade to blow himself up yeah uh, no it's a great like i say it's a great scene and it's it's one of those things where you can go well i i guess also the film was long already though as well it's yeah. so i'm sure they would have been looking for things to to trim because it's not a short movie no. but it's a but also maybe it's a pacing because with Cameron, he's very aware of pace as well. So I imagine there might have been different, but it certainly wasn't cut because it was a bad scene. But if he did then go, well, we, I, he knew he was taking liberties with the timeline of that, then that's yeah. a good reason to have cut it. You know, It's, it's a beautiful reason. And it's a, it's a reason, I, 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 you know, Ridley Scott is a genius and I respect how much you like him, but Alien Covenant, he should have still respected that timeline for gestation <laughs> and also not make that movie. Yeah, well, I, I, well, no, I mean, I've got to say, you know, not a fan of Alien Covenant. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> but Good. actually, I do, having rewatched it a few times, I've actually got a lot more into Prometheus. I enjoy it a lot more. I love now. Prometheus. That's so, yeah, that's, uh, it's great. It's, I, I respect Prometheus a lot. I think it's great. I think yeah. it makes sense. Well, but Alien Covenant, I can do without, actually. Yeah. But I wish he had made the third one. I wish he had completed his trilogy, you know. Yeah. But there you go. It's always dangerous to go back, as we said earlier, go, it's an existing IP. We've got to do more <laughs> on it, bloody blah. So, he was rerunning maybe what he'd done and it maybe it would have been better to get a fresher filmmaker in because of also one of my other favorite alien films is alien free which is you know maybe contentious but it's 
David Fincher, and that was a troubled production. But mm. actually, it's a beautiful film, and it's the darkest of the Alien films. It's got a bleakness to it, and it's got that thing that the Fincher does so well. It makes you feel kind of like, kind of like in this cold, sterile environment. I mean, I, 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 I think agree. Charles. No. I think it's Charles's dance is one of his best performances. Oh, yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking the, his performance in that. Yeah. Beautiful. Sorry, I'm going off, off topic. No, 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 no. It's really interesting because as I've got older, Alien 3, and I, I used to trash Alien 3 all the time because, and I still kind of believe the fact that, and it's not the movie's fault, but the fact that Hicks and Newt die at the start, not only is a terrible way to start the third part, but also damages Alien's legacy because you can never fully enjoy the the feel-good ending of Aliens because, you know, they die at the start of the next fucking movie. So, yeah. But that said, sorry, um, now we've gone really off track, but the reason I, it's grown on me is because I love the bleakness now. I didn't as a kid. Oh, the bleakness, and it's got an, also an extraordinary score, and it's got some beautiful scenes. Like, it's got some st absolute standout scenes, once again, but that's because Fincher is so good. And also, yeah. you know, you've got to admit that, it, it, like, it's from um, the, the Ripley character, um, you know, where Sigourney Weaver decides to take the character. She really goes, you know, for her full kind of Joan of Arc. She really, she really invests in it emotionally, and I think that that's where the film has a real performance authenticity in it, which, you know, when you get to Alien 4, it all becomes jokey and it feels like pop will eat itself, you know. So I, I feel that that, you know, to me, to me, the, the the reason I like those different Alien films is because they're so different. You know, Ridley's one is that that perfect setting up of the world Then you've got Cameron doing his kind of action one. Then you've got Fincher doing his super dark bleak one, but also... Look at those free directors. I mean, they're some of the best free directors in the world who have made Alien <laughs> films. So no wonder they're good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and also, final note on Alien 3, Brian Glover as a prison warden I could watch all day. Uh, oh, yeah, the... Brian Glover. Yeah, you, know, if, if you wanted to put a boo on, though, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, right then. So that is the fist-pumping moment. Get away from her, you bitch. Right, next, we're going to play what you consider Jake Cinema's most shocking moment oh okay well what what i consider cinema's shocking moment and this is because um when i when i was at I, when I was at sixth form college i actually did a one of the, uh, an early film studies course which was which was unusual at that time it was at west kent college in tunbridge and we started film and we looked at a lot of and we would we, we we covered the work of alfred hitchcock and i was a hitchcock fan but then we really went into the work of alfred hitchcock and i think it's Janet Lee's death in Psycho is the most shocking moment in terms of cinema because it was it was the probably the first time in mainstream cinema where the main character is killed off halfway through the film, and that as far as I know that hadn't been done before. If it had been done before, I'm not aware of it. And Hitchcock is a mark once again. We're talking a master of cinema, a guy who started off making silent movies. I mean he. This guy, cinema, it's, he invented a lot of the language of modern cinema, certainly a lot of modern horror cinema in terms of scares and jumps and whatever. But narratively, the braveness of that device and also the fact that the audience, we, we love Janet Lee, She's brilliant. And also, but also she's a morally compromised character as well because she's stolen money. She's, you're not, you know, she's, Hitchcock always liked this delicious idea of, uh, of making the audience like the person who is kind of morally, you know, like questionable, but because he was a kind of anti-authoritarian, you know, there's this famous story of his dad got him locked up in a in a, a, a jail by a local policeman when he was a kid to instill into him a fear of authority, and that's in Hitchcock's films, I, I think, you know. But 
killing off Janet Lee in that moment when she's got away with the money, she's at this motel. And then then he the Hitchcock does something even more amazing. He then switches our sympathy to Norman Bates because he's harassed by his mother. So we then start feeling, oh, well, you know, he's a misunderstood character. And then he's the guy who murdered that. It's so clever. It's so, But that is a genuinely shocking moment. And there's another kill in Psycho when the detective, Arbogast, um, when he goes up the stairs and he gets knifed at the top of the stairs and you've got the overhead shot. It's the first time I'd ever seen a shot like that as well. And it's incredible as he goes back down the stairs and the camera follows him. There's another amazing moment. So the studio didn't want Hitchcock to make Psycho as a big film. So he made it through his TV division, shot it in black and white because it was cheaper. And he made it because they didn't believe in the film. The film then got released in cinemas and became one of the biggest box office films of all time. And it goes back to the reason the reason the studio didn't believe in it because they thought, you can't kill your main character off halfway through. You can't. You can't do this. It's too violent. You can't. So, for all of the reasons that the film is great, is the reasons that the studio didn't believe in it. And this comes back to our, our talking about. It's not based on an IP. It was based on a, on a great book by Robert Block. But the point is, is that Hitchcock wasn't allowed to to make. Really, he he was told he shouldn't really be making this film, but he did it anyway, and it changed cinema. It, it invented things in cinema which hadn't been done since that point. So when you see Janet Lee killed, and it's an incredible murder scene, the, the psycho, the, the shower sequence from an editing perspective, and I've watched that film as an editor and you know looked at all of the different cuts and stuff, and it's an extraordinarily great sequence. And it uses music in a way that, I, I, you know, that burn at home and the stabbing, it's incredible. And so it set up so many things that we're now used to, but they had never been done before. And like I say, I, I, I saw that film as a, when I was, you know, probably about, I first saw it on television probably when I was about 12 or something, and it was an amazing experience. But it's, a, it's an experiential film. When she gets in the car and it's raining and it's just like, you know, you can see, you know, Gargento uses that in Suspiria and stuff like that. There's so many things about that film which are just incredible. And yeah, but that, that death is a shocking death, and it still is. It's, it's yeah. incredible. It's, I love that. And that that score that you mentioned, I mean that Bernard Herrmann score. That's that's a iconic and b as the story goes, didn't Hitchcock give him twice give him twice the money that he was going to give him uh, after he came up with that score because initially Hitchcock didn't have any music on that scene and he didn't think it worked. And then Bernard Herrmann went, "How about this?" Yeah, well, basically Bernard Herrmann kind of reinvented what a score could do in a horror context with that that music because it's 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 amazing to think that nobody had done something like that before but it's because it's literally the music is also stabbing you <laughs> i mean it's an incredible it's incredible you know amazing amazing choice janet lee's death in psycho but yeah i mean you raise a really fascinating point because we're sort of told anyone who's a scriptwriter especially is often told this is how you formulate a script. This is how it works. These are the acts. This is you, this is your hero's journey. And then when you see a film like Psycho, or more recently, the film I was thinking of as you were telling me about that, Barbarian, a movie that just yeah. totally throws the structure book out the window and yet somehow works. But, but actually, Barbarian, I, I agree, but Barbarian very much owes a debt to Psycho because it is doing that Psycho thing. Mm. You know, I actually feel that, I'm sure if you spoke to the makers of Barbarian, they would. I'm sure they would cite Psycho because structurally it's very Psycho. But Psycho changed what people thought was possible narratively as well. Mm. So this is why it's such an important film in film history. But Hitchcock, like I say, he was inventing cinema. You know, at a point where people weren't just copying what other people had done; they were innovating. 
Uh, I'm getting excited. We're getting closer and closer to which movie you've picked for us tonight. But before we get there, through the Dolby Atmos speakers, we are going to play the line or piece of dialogue from a movie that most affected you. Oh, well, the, 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 the absolutely, the, the line which, you know, stays with me is the is Roy Batty's death speech in Blade Runner, which is now, you know, it, it, may have, it may even feel like a cliche saying that. But once again, I, I didn't get to see Blade Runner at the cinema because it came out in 1982, I think it was, and I was 12, so I was actually too young to go and see it. So I was part of the generation that discovered Blade Runner on video, and I bought the video, the selfie videotape that I had, you know, and it's one of my all-time favorite films. It's, in, I say, Ridley Scott, the world that he built in Blade Runner, never seen anything like it, and it's still the, the most beautiful example of somebody sort of, having a vision of a future which you believed could be so like it, it felt it felt real and it felt dark and it felt dingy and you know it's got the film laughing going in it as well and it's once again it's perfectly cast it's perfectly art directed and it's beautiful it's for so many reasons and there's so many great scenes in Blade Runner it's not just the end scene but that's the scene as a teenager you know Roy Batty's death you know I've seen things you people wouldn't believe ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion mm. you know that's it's it's poetic and you know having obviously watched a lot of f films about the making of that and seeing Rutger Hauer interviewed about that scene and how about he he came and changed a lot of that dialogue as well like he wanted to he he, he enhanced that moment but it's a perfect it's a perfect moment where it's also it's because it's beautiful and it's inspiring and it's about you know somebody dying who wants to be alive who then saves somebody who's been trying to kill him and there's mm -hmm. so, there's so many levels of things going on with that. And that beautiful speech, it's, it reminds you about how important it is to be alive and to, to, and to actually suck out the moments and the joy from things. Because what are the things, you know, if you were dying on a rooftop after being stalked, Alex, and you're thinking about your life, this hope you, I, I hope you saw sea beams glittering in the dark at the townhouse again, because I definitely would wanted to have seen that. Yeah, and you mentioned world building when you were talking about the alien uh, film and aliens earlier, Cameron um, Ridley Scott. And... This moment here, like all the things he mentions, you know, attack ships ablaze off the shoulder of Orion, sea beams glitter in the townhouse again. This is all talking about his experiences off world. And so as well as it being a beautiful emotional speech and everything you said about him, you know, saving a man who was trying to kill him, then dying and, and the final line, all these moments. But it's that in that brief speech, you just suddenly mentally and visually transported to this whole other world that the movie hasn't talked about really for like two hours. Yeah, but it's also because it's so poetic and it makes you envisage what his life has been as a kind of like this soldier slave kind of, character, you know, replicant. And, you know, it's it's fact because there's a I was really torn between which scene to pick. And I, I, I've probably gone for the more cliche one, but not the cliche, but. I think it's a scene that maybe quite a lot of people would pick, you know, mm. Blade hit the Bash's death. It's the other scene that I also that almost picked, and it's just as good. <laughs> is is when he is when he kills Terrell, his father. It's in, oh that's an God. incredible scene when he, you know, yeah. p p p takes his eyes out and he Puts kills his, his creator. His eyes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it it's is. one of my favourite shots in the film. In fact, is when he goes down in the lift after doing that, and the expression on Rutger Hauer's face is is extraordinary and basically Ridley Scott the master director looking up at looking up at Rutger Hauer in a glass elevator and but and through the glass behind him are stars and it's literally it's literally 
the fall of Satan. It's like he's he's cast out of heaven because he's just killed his creator. And that is that 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 shot gives you all of that. And that's why Ridley Scott is one of the great all time great directors. And the Howard's performance though, it's like the the look on his face after he's killed me, questioning what he's done. It's yeah. extraordinary, you know. Uh, agreed. It's an incredible moment. And you know what? We've reached our penultimate question. One final question before we announce the movie we're watching tonight. And this, Jake, is what you consider the best use of music in a film. Okay, so this is, once again, this is this is tough because literally, I mean, we've talked about Bernard Herrmann, you know, we've talked, I mean, Blade Runner's also got an incredible score as well. But mm. but so it's almost, it's this is almost an impossible thing, but I had to pick a film. So I'm, go, I'm picking a film where, where I first became aware of how much music could affect cinema. And this is a film that I, the, 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 um, when I probably first saw when I was about maybe 10 or 11 on television. And my, my dad was a, a big cinema fan. And when certain films came in, he would say, you've got to watch this, you've got to watch this. And one of those films was, was what it was that they were showing the Sergi Leone Dollars trilogy, probably on BBC Two as part of the season or whatever. So I watched the, the, the Dollars movies like as a young, very young, you know, 10, 11. <clears throat> and I remember thinking that, that and it was the the music which was just extraordinary in it. And then by the time of Good, the Bad and the Ugly, Ennio Morricone, one of the world's greatest composers, obviously he's done some of the greatest scores of all time, like The Mission and also, so, but he's an incredible, incredible composer. But when I was a kid, being that young, 10, 11, watching the, those Sergio Leone movies for the first time, I became like the use of music in them was just it, because it, 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 you know, you don't think of a, I'd seen like John Wayne Westerns before this and like, you know, High Noon and things like that, which are, you know, in good Westerns and interesting films like The Searchers and whatever, but they all, they kind of feel boring compared to Sergio Leone film. You've got so, you, you know, so when the good to the bad, the ugly starts, ah, 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 you've got this, and it's just crazy. It's, it's off the hook and because it's, set in you know they're shot in italy and it's or spain in fact in almeria in spain it wasn't even shot, an italian western an american an american genre the western shot mm. in spain by a bunch of italians <laughs> everything felt like they had a sense of kind of weirdness and grandeur to it that that american westerns didn't have for me and and the but it was the music that stayed in your mind it, stayed, it was like it was earworm music stuff and it's one of my favorite scenes in any film is the final shootout in Sad Hill Cemetery at the end between oh, the, the three the, of them. Like the you, bull ring, got, yeah, yeah, the yeah. The good, the bad, the ugly. You've got Tuco, Angel Eyes, and the stranger, you know, Clint. And they have the, they've got, they've finally got to the cemetery after all of the, all of the amazing adventures to try and find out where the gold is buried. And you've got the freeway shootout, which is once again an absolute masterclass in editing. Mm. But I, I, but I believe that he got Leone to, so it's Leone got um, Morricone to write the score before he he cut it, so he could cut it. So, and it's it's a level of operatic kind of interaction where, especially just three three blokes checking each other to see who's going to shoot, and it's and it builds into such a frenzy. And that track is called "The Ecstasy of Gold," and it's it's incredible. <laughs> and there's no other there's no other shootout like it, you know. Yeah. But you, yeah, he 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 did something. You know, like there's a once again another great is in um, for a few dollars more, which was the film before that, and that's got another amazing thing with the with the kind of music box and the watch. But I, I think he took everything up to eleven in Good, Bad, and Ugly, 
and that music it's just like I can't think of that film without hearing the music. So, <laughs> yeah. and it, it just inspired me. So when I when I was making my early films on video in the eighties, shot on video stuff, I in loads of my films I endlessly re, I, I endlessly recreated versions of that final shootout. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the people in mine were like they were kind of punks and goths. So they had like Americans and sort of, you know they would be, they would get to a point where they would have a shootout and it would be doing that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think I, I was watching an interview. Quentin, I think Quentin Tarantino also. Um, he, uh, he 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 uh, says this is his favorite uh, use of music in a movie. This the, the whole the the bit you mentioned. This whole the bit where the score comes to a crescendo, and like you say, the editing there and just the tension it ratchets up is incredible, man. But also because you absolutely love all of those characters by that point as well. This is the this is the great thing about about that film is like all of the characters, however kind of like um horrible and, and they're all there is no good in the good, the bad and the ugly. The good the, the only reason Clint Eastwood is good is because he gives a dying man a cigar to take a little puff on and he strokes a cat pussy cat. But other than that, <laughs> he is he doesn't do anything that would be regarded as good. <laughs> Right, and then. I love that as well because the Italians didn't have the same. They didn't have this moralizing sense that you yeah. had in the American films, and 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 that's why maybe it felt like probably how the the real the real kind of Wild West was. I mean, there's that bit where he's getting onto the train, and there's the there's the half soldier, the guy who's lost his legs, on a, just on a board, like you know, in the Civil War, and that you know, you get the feeling that's probably how people would have seen people at that point. So it actually showed a bit of what the horror of probably. That, that environment was as well and i love that film it's an epic if if anyone hasn't watched the dollars trilogy they should watch it but in terms of if they want a true perfect spaghetti western then the good and the bad dog is the one for so many reasons the music the performance everything once again it's one of those films where everything clearly came together absolutely perfectly well as ennio morricone's score to 1966's the good the bad and the ugly fades out we have arrived. It is now time to, and I'm putting them in because this is your cinema. This is your experience. It's time to pull back the huge red velvet curtains because we're about to announce to this excited audience and Jane Mansfield, the film you, Jake West, out of all others, have decided to screen for us tonight. Jake, what are we watching? Well, literally, because it's just two days after Halloween that we're doing this. So the film that we're going to watch is one of my all-time favorites, and it's going to be Phantasm. If this wasn't one doesn't scare you, you're already dead. Now, this <laughs> this copy of Phantasm uh -huh. is, the, is the one that I bought from the video shop back in Tunbridge Wells all those years ago. Um, this is the original the, the video release of it. This is, this is the copy that I first watched when I was 14 years old in like 1984. And I, I rented it loads of times from the video shop because I loved it. And in the end, I, 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 I bought it from them because I, I just wanted, I wanted to have it. So this film, this film means a lot to me for lots of different reasons. So seeing, seeing it as a fourteen-year-old, I didn't, I didn't, I, I only got to see this in the cinema recently. In fact, about three or four, maybe four years ago, because um, there was a four K restoration of Phantasm that, that Don Coscarelli and Don Coscarelli came to London. And they had a premiere and the Pitch House Central. And obviously, I. I've got to become friends with Don, Don, because we we um, 
we did a documentary called Phantasmagoria, which was about the Phantasm films. So I actually got to go to LA and interview him and, you know, and Angus Grimm, who's now dead, the tall man, Reggie Bannister, you know, and uh, Michael A. Baldwin. And it was incredible. So I got to, I got to meet the, the, the characters, the heroes from my, my sort of childhood film, which I, I, I fell in love with Phantasm. And Phantasm is a film which is an, an extraordinary experience <laughs> if you haven't well, seen it. This is what I was going to ask you, just because it, it, there are some people listening who will never have seen uh, 1979's horror, Don Coscarelli's Phantasm. Now, I could try and explain it, like zombie dwarves, alien planets, flying orbs, but how would you describe it to the uninitiated? Well, I think that I think the, the great thing about phantasm is it almost kind of defies description. It's at, at its heart, it's it's the it's the story of a of a guy who's lost his brother in a in a car wreck. It's a, it's a story of a guy of a kid trying to deal with death and make sense of it, and and it's also about him getting embroiled in this very strange set of circumstances where a local a local like an undertaker mortician strange things he seems to appear to be robbing people's graves and turning them into monsters mm. so it's it's like a kind of haunted house monster movie vibe with kids with a kid and it's about you know trying to trying to find himself but it's it defies description because it then it, it does a switch because it becomes it, you know it's a, it's a sort of horror film with comedy moments that then turns into a sort of science fiction film at a certain point and it kind of defies description you know and <laughs> like i say for people who that just, just so that you to know for people, just so they oh know how God. crazy it is. This is this is a sphere, which is um, in in phantasm. Now this this thing fly it flies down corridors and it it will bang it will go into into people's heads and a little drill will come out and drill into their brain and then all the blood will spurt out the back of the sphere. So and that scene, I've never seen that scene is is so shocking even now and it's and it's so well done because not only does is it like the, the sphere hits the head and then the blood, like you say, comes out the back. But when the body collapses and you uh, just see it's Michael, isn't it? Just hiding behind the corner. And then the dead guy, as happens, but you never see in horror movies, he soils himself. You see the... Yeah, the exactly. Pool. And there's, yeah, there's some piss going down. The sun there. It's uh, so good. But, which was, I think we've seen it subsequently to that. But back then, that was the first... But Don Corsquelli was only 18 years old when he made Phantasm as well. Wow. And it took him like a, over a year or so of shooting. And he was somebody who became inspirational to me as a young filmmaker who made a movie. And it made, it's like him and Sam Raimi were the, were the people that were, I was inspired by their stories when I found out about them. Because Sam was 19 when he did Evil Dead. I was 26 years old when I made my first film. But I thought, God, I'm really late to this party because it was, it's so much harder to make movies in the UK at that point. Mm. Um, but I was inspired by, by, by Phantasm for many different reasons. And I, once again, I watched it when I was like... 14 years old and i and i i wasn't cynical about it as well because it is a low budget film and for some people they might find that they might have a problem with that that low budgetness of it but to me i something that i also loved it it's because it had it's got this feeling about it which is once again it's it's not something that feels that it's a stu it's not been touched by a studio it's, it's definitely the creation of don corsquelli and don the fact that he started a franchise and he did you know four more films after it you know, it, it shows you the, how much sort of it, it lasted. And so I kind of fell in, lo fell in love with it as a, as a teenager. And I think watching it once again, I saw it at a time when I was far less critical about movies. So if you were very critical about films and you haven't watched a lot of this kind of movie, you might you, it might feel dated for you in a way that it certainly didn't when I first saw it.
Mm. Um, but like I say, I actually got to see this 4K restoration with Don Corsgrelli, the director, you know, like 35 years later or something. And that was, inc- that was an incredible moment. So for me, it's special. What was that like, actually meeting the person who'd inspired you to begin your own journey? Well, well, obviously, I first met Don when we did, we interviewed him mm. for the documentary. But he actually came over to the UK. Actually, we met him through Mo Claridge, who used, who was the guy who set up and run Anchor Bay Video, and because he was one of the first people to release Phantasm in the UK, so I, he was friends with Don. So I actually got to meet Don, and it was like, oh, this is amazing. Then we went to LA, and we got to meet all of the people in it, and then. Like I say, then years later, he did the 4K restoration, came over to London. We, me, we got to, I got to sit next to Don watching Phantasm. It's like incredible, I, you know. You could, it's dreams, dreams come true stuff. But Phantasm is also special if you're, if you, if you're a horror aficionado and you're interested in the kind of history of horror. Phantasm was one of the films that partially set the, the template about kind of dream reality stuff. And there's the scenes in Phantasm which inspired um, Nightmare on Elm Street and New Line to want to make that kind of films with like that because it was ahead of that curve. And it, you know, like the the bit when he's dreaming and all of the hands come up over him in the great, like all of these things were never you'd never seen that before. Like I said, when you watch it now, you would have seen a lot of this stuff repeated in other in other, in other films, but. It's got so many things in it. And like, even there's a bit where there's this really bad effect with this bug. <laughs> like this, this guy gets his finger cut off, puts it in a box. They, they, but then it somehow turns into like a sort of killer flying bug thing. Now, the effects on that bug are really not great, but they trap it underneath <laughs> a, a sort of like a bit of cloth and they're going around with it. And it's so funny, though. And it's one of those things where, to me, that I get more enjoyment out of that scene than I would do of a yeah. kind of big CG. It's, it's, it's genuinely yeah. hilarious. And, and if you like those characters, you really warm to stuff like that. And there's bits in cinema where you, there's a sort of purity to it. And there's a sort of a purity of the joy in those, those scenes, which I absolutely love. So that's why I'd like to share Phantasm for people to maybe have a, an experience of something that they've never quite had before because it's so quirky and so and, different. And, and at its heart, I, I, like I, I, I found because I didn't see it till recently. So if, if someone is coming to it late, uh, one of the things that I loved is is the central brotherly relationship between Michael and his older older brother is really well done and well acted and believable. Oh no, that that's actually beautiful. Yeah, that I mean, and I think that's like I say, but seeing that at fourteen years old, I think that was one of the the bits that felt they're really connected with that the idea of him having lost his his brother and that idea you really and but they really builds that relationship and you feel that it's genuine as well you 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 fit you feel the heart in it and also going back to music it's also got one of the great scores as well phantasm the phantasm theme by fred myro is a brilliant piece of music and it's an iconic horror theme, you know. It, to me, it's as recognisable as, as like as Halloween, or but it, you know, it's 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 if you if, once you know Phantasm, that music seeps into you as well. I've got the soundtrack album. I've got I'm a big Phantasm. I've got you know, I've got the poster. I've got the original novelisation. I, I, I love I've, it. I've, I bet love you it. do. I bet you have everything. I doubt there is a piece of memorabilia <laughs> about Phantasm you don't actually own. Wow, what a journey! That's it, Jake. The curtains, the big red velvet curtains are closing. The guests are milling out, Jane Mansfield included, smiling, chatting and thanking you for taking them on an incredible night out of the movies. But before you go, it is time for this week's mystery question as we ask, what's in the box? Sorry, with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? So, mystery question. 
uh, seeing this for the first time. Okay. Okay. Uh, having just made your own wonderful documentary, Mancunian Man, what is the documentary that you've watched and inspired or moved you the most, either about film or otherwise? One of my one of my favourite documentaries about filmmaking, and I mentioned it earlier in the programme, I remember the title now, it's um, Leap of Faith, which is the William Freakin interview about The Exorcist, and it's about the making of The Exorcist and about... It's in terms of a of a filmmaker talking about their their process and 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 the kind of depth and of the creative involvement that he put into that film and the casting and all of the incredible stories about it it's it's a masterclass in how a director approaches directing a film and it's incredibly insightful and you know he's such an eloquent speaker it really gets to the the heart of how a film can be made but it, once again, it's a very difficult question because there's other documentaries which I love, like um, Hearts of Darkness, oh, yeah. which is the Coppola about the making of Apocalypse Now. And obviously, because it was such, they had so many things that they had to fight, and it was a really hard, terrible shoot. You know, um, also there's a there's a making of on the Shining d- disc on one of them. There's a there's a making of the Shining done by Stanley Stanley Kubrick's daughter. Um, which is also an incredible making of, but for yeah. very different reasons. But because it's because it, the great thing about I think his daughter was called I think it's Vivian yeah. or something like that. Um, but it's an extraordinary making of though because it's not like a it's not like a normal making of like a studio approved making of. It's kind of like it, it feels like wow, this is really like you're on set with Kubrick and you can see. Isn't there that moment as well in that one where you see, I think that's the one where you can see Jack Nicholson sort of psyching himself up for the uh, the breaking down the door scene. And- yes, that's that's the one, yeah. And it's, it's got the bit where Shelley Duval, Duval has been mm, brought to yeah. tears. And, you know, literally, I, don't, I mean, I don't think you get away with this now, but literally it seems like, you know, Kubrick is kind of like no. mocking her. Yeah, yeah. But she's saying, you know, clumps of my hair came out and he's holding about one hair going, look, clumps. I mean, like- you talk about what you can't get away with now. I mean, I, 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 as great as The Exorcist is and William Friedkin is, I mean, there are some stories. Oh, well, the story the story about the, about the end, about Father Dyer, to get how he got that mm. performance out of him. Like I said, I don't, that story is in Leap of Faith. And it, I mean, look. As a director, you wouldn't be able to employ no. that technique now. I mean, do you want me to say what it is to the audience? No, you can. You can say yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's yeah. Well, for, it's, okay, for the audience, right at the end, he wasn't feeling that he was getting the performance from the actor who wasn't a trained actor. He was a, he cast him because he was incredibly naturalistic, and he thought this was the the, the right guy, and he was right. But there's the scene, the scene at the end when he is responding to um, to yeah. Karis's death. He he didn't feel that he was he had the right level of emotional shock. So he said to the actor, you know, do you, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And this is just before they're going to go for a take. And the actor says, yes. So literally, he then punched yeah. him in the face and then mm-hmm. called action. And the shock on the, the, shock on the actor's face, and the, because it, it put him directly into the moment. And, and clearly, <laughs> that's not a directorial technique no. that would be allowed now. And, but he talks about how Herzog, you know, would go on set shooting guns. And, that, you know, and, I, and I think it was an, another American filmmaker did this. Was, was it um, Howard Hawks? Yeah. Beat. But there used to be techniques that directors would have done in the past, which would now be considered, you know, kind of monstrous from a health and safety point of view. But the point is, is that these are apocryphal kind of stories because it also shows you that some of those techniques in terms of the the result Mm. was incredible. But, you know, maybe the web method you got there. And like I say, in the world now, that wouldn't be acceptable in any way. But it's still fascinating to hear. But like I say, when you watch Apocalypse Now, for instance, and then you watch Hearts of Darkness and you realize that, 
basically Marlon Brando had turned up on set and not learned any of the lines and stuff. And it's kind of like yeah. uh, he put on loads of weight and he didn't want to be photographed full body. Like the the the, dif the difficulties that were were imposed yeah. on it, and yet because Coppola was such a good filmmaker, it, it's he turned those scenes into incredible sequences and scenes, but. You know, that to get there was a nightmare, probably even more nightmarish than the making of Hustle Hall. <laughs> oh, that campaign, I can feel it. Which is the making yeah. of that I really yeah. want to see next. <laughs> I, I, I think it's gathering support as we still speak. I think I think there's a groundswell growing. Hey, Jake, that is it. Your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. But before you go, let's recap your perfect night out at the cinema. You are going with the screen legend Jane Mansfield to a screening at midnight. You are sitting in the middle row in the middle seat because a filmmaker you know that is the optimum place to enjoy vision and sound together we are having vodka martinis with some lime vodka jelly shots as well mm -mm -mm. as we go down the corridor the posters we're putting up putting up for your fondest movie memory are the lost boys and the rocky horror picture show from watching them in tombridge wells in the 80s two of the greatest experiences you've had at the cinema the movie that depicts the poster that depicts your worst movie memory is Exorcist Believer. The poster that depicts the last performance that brought you to tears, Sophie Wilde in Talk to Me. And the final poster that depicts your unpopular movie opinion is that 1991's Bruce Willis movie Hudson Hawk is brilliant, deserves a director's cut to be released, and a making of documentary. The petition starts now. We're going into the auditorium. We're playing the trailer for David Fincher's The Killer and Ridley Scott's Napoleon. We are then going to play the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air. It's from Aliens. Get away from her, you bitch. Then we're going to play what you consider cinema's most shocking moment. It's Janet Lee's death in Psycho. It rewrote the rulebook on cinema structure, the line of dialogue or piece of dialogue from a movie that most affected you. It is the speech that leads into all those moments will be lost in time like tears in rain. Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty, the end of Blade Runner. The best use of music in a movie. It is Ennio Morricone's score during the climax of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly before we sit down to watch Don Coscarelli's 1979 horror Phantasm. Jake, it's been an incredible journey. Have you had a good time? Yeah, when you just recapped it, it felt like I felt my cinematic life flashing <laughs> before my eyes. Like it. <laughs> so yeah, it's. Uh, I, I I really enjoyed going on this trip down memory lane, and I hope it was um, of interest to you and your audience because it's it's been it's actually been really interesting to go back into some of those memories and experiences. Uh, it was a wonderful trip, Jake. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, and uh, good luck again with uh, Mancunian Man. Yeah, no, so, okay, yeah, so Mancunian Man is screening on the 12th of November at the Coltplex in Manchester at uh, 8, I think it's 8 p.m. or 7 p.m. on on November the 12th, which is a Sunday. And then it's going to, then we're going to Abattoir Festival in Wales. So it's going to be playing in, down in Abattoir in Aberystwyth in Wales. So that's in the week of the starting the 13th. I don't know the exact date on it, but if you go on the, the website, you could check it out. So if you're in Wales or you're in Manchester, there's a chance to see it soon. 
Manchester on the 12th of November and the Abattoir Festival in Wales. I do hope a lot of people see this movie. That would be amazing. If they've been there, there would be a chance for them to see it in a cinema as well, which would be fantastic. And it is worth seeing in a cinema. And I, I hope the, I hope the box set comes to fruition. I, I look forward to actually being able to watch some Cliff Twemlow movies in the future because um, I was inspired. Ah, oh, excellent. Well, I, I look forward to having a chat with you and a drink when you have seen some of them. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Take care and enjoy the rest of your day, Jake. Great. Thank you so much, mate. And you too. Cheers. And as Jake's cab carries him away from our virtual cinema, off into the distance, we must all leave his movie paradise and return to reality. But to soften the blow, how would you like a pair of tickets for a night out to very real Odeon Cinema? Each week, we give away a pair to someone who leaves us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It is that simple. So just jump on there, leave us a review, and if I read it out, we will send you some tickets. The competition is only open to UK residents, and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget... You can find the full video for today's Jake West interview and indeed for every guest over on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So please head over there and as I said at the start, do help us grow the pod by hitting that subscribe button. And that really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest fills our virtual cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye.